And welcome to Double Oz 7, a James Bond podcast, back for yet another episode. I believe this is episode 11. We're into double digits. Um, good that we're into the 1 1. We are finally into a new era as we're talking about more, Roger Moore. Um, excited to finally get into this, into our third Bond in 11 episodes. So this is exciting. Uh, Today we're talking about my dad's favourite James Bond film, Live and Let Die. Uh, so I'm very excited. Roger Moore's debut. Uh, before we kick off, with it, I will say that my name is N.W. Pepper. My name is Ben, and uh, as always, I come into this with an inflated ego. <laughs> oh, you stole mine, so uh, <laughs> yes! I'm going to say I'm Colin, and I got a honky on my tail. <laughs> uh, yes, that's right. As I said, we're talking about Live and Let Die, um, Guy Hamilton, Roger Moore, Into the New Era, uh, still the same old crew except for Q, but we'll get into that. Um, so yeah, we're into the new era and strapping because we're going to be talking about this guy for a long time, oh. <laughs> uh, which I'm excited about because I'm a more fanboy. So uh we should just get straight into the film, and we start always with the general uh, perceptions of it and some just to tease up the film, and I will say that I've always really enjoyed this one, but after this rewatch, it's kind of gone down a bit for me. I still don't hate it, but there's a lot in there that isn't that great. Um, there's some really good stuff, the boat chase, which we'll get to, um, the theme song... Uh, and most of them are quite good. Uh, but then there's a lot of boring bits, if I'm being honest. Um, I think Moore does a good first outing, but there's just something lacking for this film, which we'll dive into eventually in, into this episode. It amazes me that basically a decade before this film came out, Guy Hamilton directed arguably one of the greatest Bond films in the history of Bond. Diamonds Are Forever. He, um, or... No, uh, and then <laughs> I see what you did there, Noah. Um, and then he comes out with this. Um, yeah, I'm not a big fan of this film. I, I mentioned that at the end of Diamonds Are Forever, and sort of rewatching it again. It just there's just so much of this film that is just like, <sighs> and I, I think it's one of the most basically crap plots in Bond history. That at the end of the day, he's just stopping somebody from selling free drugs and 
you know, that's really not what Bond films are about to me anyway. Um, but look, there, there are fun bits. I shouldn't say it's all bad. I mean, the, you know, there's more, Roger Moore, to talk about. <laughs> and um, as much as I may despise, I shouldn't say despise, dislike Roger Moore as James Bond, um, he did grow on me a little bit on this rewatch in, in the earlier days. He's got some very unique things about him that I think make him stand out ahead of the other Bonds. Um, and, of course, there are, you know, the Boat Chase, the song. I mean, there are some moments which are just amazing moments in the Bond history. But overall, yeah, not the biggest fan of this film. You know, it's funny because I'll probably end up having very similar opinion to both of you on this. But I'm kind of coming from the opposite area where I always near hated this movie. I mean, it was among my least favorite Bonds for most of my life. And I'd say it's really only over the last year or so I've watched this, I think, in probably about the last year and a half, I've watched this about three times, and it's just one of those movies that I get the urge to watch, and uh, I enjoy it more every single time I watch it, and I think on this last time, uh, there were some things that uh, I never cared for before that I really was enjoying this time, but of course, there are a lot of moments where this movie drags, and there's some plot problems that are very similar to plot problems in Diamonds Are Forever, but the one area where I'm going to disagree is I think that the, the overall plot for this is a lot stronger there is the idea of the whole heroin thing, which, like Diamonds Are Forever, it's kind of a Guy Hamilton thing just to change the plot halfway through the movie. But the basic setup that this has of all of these agents being killed around the world, and that's what Bond's investigating, I actually really like that. And I think that holds the story together a lot better than Diamonds Are Forever. So uh, I'm, I'm a lot more high in this movie than I think I ever would have been in the past. Uh, well, we all kind of touched on Roger Moore, or more Roger Moore, uh, Seeing as this is his first one, uh, we should really just touch briefly on how we find him in the past, like you mentioned, Ben, and um, how we how we enjoy him in this film and all that jazz. Um, for me, he's always been one of my favourites because I I really enjoyed the goofy and the campy and the funny Bond, um, maybe even more so than the serious ones. It's up for debate, but. I just think he he acts it so well. Um, he's so funny, and when you we all love Lazenby, but when you watch uh, this one after just watching Lazenby's debut, you can really see what an established actor can do with a role like this compared to someone who's never acted before. Like Lazenby's good, but more just fits right into it at the get-go, like he's been doing it for 50 years, um, which he will be by the end of his run, uh, by the age of him. But, yeah, so I really enjoy him. I'm not sure how I'll see at the end of these seven, but at the moment I think he does great in this film, and as a whole he's up there as one of my favourites. And I think this is going to be a bit of a division compared to the Connery run that we had. I think it's interesting because this is the third film in a row we've had a third different Bond, if you look at it sort of in the order of it. So I, I couldn't imagine how audiences were coping at this point. I mean, obviously they were established with Connery. Poor Mildred. That, poor Mildred's just mind was blown. But, you know, we had Lazenby, then Connery came back, then we're back to more. So it, it's fascinating just to sort of see, you know, if you're around in, in the 70s, in 1973, how you would have been doing that. But, I mean, Live and Let Die was a huge success, so obviously it didn't really matter. But... Yeah, look, I've always been a bit down on Roger Moore, and as I said kind of in the introduction, you know, warmed up to him a little bit. And I guess maybe my opinion of Roger Moore really falls back on kind of what you just touched about there, Noah, that like, you know, a view to a kill, he's like 807. 
and you know it's it's a bit <laughs> a bit long in the tooth by then uh, when he's trying to be sexy suave James Bond but when you go back and see him like he's very proper he's very English and that just adds a bit of a different element to well, it one like, of only two English Bonds well exactly exactly and I don't know like I, I think compared to the other English Bond he's a lot more like oh I'm James Bond rather than I'm James Bond I'll kill ya um, so <laughs> That's a terrible. That was the Australian. <laughs> That's a Daniel Craig Australian um, bit, but just I think Roger Moore has just the way he delivers his one line is is very unique. He has the best facial expressions probably out of any James Bond. And I think that what you were saying, kind of like the the non-serious side of things, and we kept joking about, oh, it's on a more film. I mean, this is, again, I love these outlandish, over-the-top James Bond films, as you know. So there's some great films in here. It's just, I think it's just my viewpoint on Roger Moore is that he just got way too long into the role, and that's why it's good to go back to the start and see this um, and really see where it all began. It's kind of funny that everybody holds that against Roger Moore, his age in the later movies, because for whatever reason, nobody does that to Sean Connery. And I mean, Sean Connery was just as long in the tooth when he did diamonds are forever. And I think the one difference is at least Roger Moore kept his enthusiasm all the way to the end. So um, I never really held it against Roger Moore. I mean, you could look at any bond and say, well, maybe they weren't so great in this movie. Maybe they stayed a little too long. Uh, It's kind of just become a cool thing to hate on Roger Moore lately. And I think that's unfortunate because, I mean, Roger Moore kept this franchise alive for a very long time. There were a lot of times where he was ready to step down. And they even, you know, when we get into the 80s, we'll talk more about how they even were hiring new actors. And then at the last minute, we're like, you know, we just don't think it'll survive without Moore. And he, he kind of just uh, kept biting the bullet and, and doing it for the better of the franchise. So I have a lot of respect for what Roger Moore did for the franchise. Obviously, you can't say enough about his humor. Um, he's also a perfect fit for the role. And yeah, some of the movies did get goofy later on. That wasn't all his fault. Even if you look at this, I mean, Guy Hamilton was way goofier, I will argue, in Diamonds Are Forever than uh, what he did here in Live and Let Die or Man with the Golden Gun. So I think a lot of the goofiness had more to do with the director choices like Lewis Gilbert and Guy Hamilton. But uh, with Roger Moore, I mean, he was such a perfect fit for this role that he was over and over again, their go-to guy that they wanted for it. I mean, all the way back when they were doing Dr. No, they wanted Roger Moore for that. And really, it just came down to the fact that he had signed on to a TV show called The Saint, which, of course, ran for years and years and years. And that's what really made him a star. Um, But uh, they ended up going with Connery. And then when Connery stepped down again, they wanted Roger Moore even for Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And, you know, he was unavailable. And uh, they looked at him briefly before they got Connery back for Diamonds Are Forever, but he was signed on to another show. And it was really just over and over again, just him not being available, uh, probably being willing but not available, which it's funny will repeat itself with Pierce Brosnan when we get to the 80s. Uh, just these these classic Bonds who they always knew they wanted, but just uh, the timing didn't line up right. So I think it was always going to be a given that if Connery wasn't going to do it, they wanted more. And the one benefit I think of him being cast here was that you needed somebody with star power to take over for Connery. You know, they tried the unknown with Lazenby and it didn't work. And I think after Diamonds Are Forever and how famous Sean Connery was in this role, if you didn't get somebody like Roger Moore, 
who is already a decade into his fame, um, I don't think that Live and Let Die necessarily works as well, or I don't think it's successful enough to even warrant sequels after this. Just just really quickly, um, I think one interesting thing about I mean, I'm glad you brought up that about they're so consistent with they want these actors even when they're not available. One thing that I guess we should not gloss over is, of course, Roger Moore is older than Sean Connery. So um, when Roger Moore started as James Bond in Live and Let Die, he was 46. When Sean Connery started, he was 32. And to put that into perspective, I guess Sean Connery was 41 in Diamonds Are Forever, yet uh, Sean Connery was... Uh, sorry, Roger Moore was older on his debut, but he, he doesn't look that old to me. I think, he looks, I think he looks the same age as Connery did in Dr. No, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah he looks a lot younger. The only reason Moore looks old in the later ones is because he's old. It was 12 <laughs> years later. It's like, 57. Like, 60. He actually holds uh, being older, looking older, better than Connery does. It's just we didn't see Connery get that far into his... Well... Never say never again, but yeah. It's the hair. It's just the hair. <laughs> Which again, yeah. it's funny. I mean, he comes back again 20 years after doing Bond and people still don't hold it against him for being too old. So that's why I just don't understand the, the Roger Moore hate for his age. Well, at least movie. Moore had his own hair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and still has it. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we touched on like the goofiness and the campy. There seems to be the stigma around it like, oh, this is a bad film. It's campy it's unrealistic it's goofy and i just don't understand why we can't like those ones like why yeah. does it have to be that it has to be super serious like even dr no isn't that serious um goldfinger isn't that serious so i don't know why like it has to be oh if you like these ones they're not as good as the serious ones because that's not what bond is but that's just my little rant um and I think but we found by watching these is, yes, Live and Let Die is incredibly goofy, but compared to, like, You Only Live Twice, Diamonds Are Forever, it just, it's the same as that. Like, You Only Live Twice and this film are any more or less sillier than each other. So, um... It's th- a more realistic plot, I guess, in oh, this movie. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't... Like, undoubtedly, Roger Moore has the zaniest and craziest films, but I don't... I think they get oversold as being crazy sometimes besides Moonraker. Like there's still a lot of Sean Connery elements retained in them. But anyway, we'll touch on more throughout these seven films um, as we go, but let's jump into the film. We've kind of set up more and we'll get straight into the pre-title sequence, which is quite short and quite uneventful. Um, It's the first one not to feature Bond in any form at all. You could argue that from Russia with love doesn't, but, it still has Sean Connery. Um, and we get three kind of small little segments or vignettes of we have uh, the UN in New York where the UK leader is killed with the high-pitched frequency. Uh, we've got New Orleans, uh, the jazz funeral, and then we've got San Monique, an island in the Caribbean, as we're told, which <laughs> is not even a real island. Um, and we have the guy killed there with the snake, Um and cut into the opening titles. <laughs> there really isn't too much to talk about. I don't hate this one, but it's just so uneventful, and there's not a lot. Like, you kind of need it to set up the film, but it's not that exciting. I do like the funeral one. Whose funeral is it? Yours. And then they're dancing. Like That's probably my favourite shot of the scene, and you see that played a lot. Um, I guess you could say it's a famous scene, but, yeah, I don't know, Ben. What do you think of the pre-title sequence? There isn't really a huge amount to touch on here. 
well, going back onto what Colin said, I will say that as much as I don't like this movie, I do like the setup of the movie. That yes, we've got three agents killed, so that's got to set Bond off onto this sort of adventure to to find out what's going on. Um, and I, I like kind of how that sets it up. I love the fact that we've finally got New York in James Bond. Hello. Um, and we've got the UN. Now, is is the guy, who, the British guy who gets killed, is he meant to be the British Prime Minister or is he just like a diplomat? Because I'm guessing if that was a Prime Minister, it'd be a bit of a bigger yeah. deal about I mean, it. UN Ambassador, probably. <laughs> okay, right. Okay, just the, 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 you know, the UK Prime Minister's just been assassinated and no one gives a shit. I think um, we would know if that was the case. Yes, I'm sure that would be a big story point. Um, but yeah, I think definitely the the standout is the funeral. Um, it's it's just great, and we see it obviously later on, and you know it just it plays up, I guess, to the reputation that New Orleans or whatever um, Roger Moore calls it later yeah. in the movie um, <laughs> has, and it's sort of you know it's a music town, and it's you know it's it's got lots of parties and street festivals and things like that. And well, they wanted um, to use the Mardi Gras, but they thought it would be too similar to uh, what did they call it in Thunderball? Thunderball. Oh the the um oh I should know because I was there um Junkanoo <laughs> yeah Junkanoo, they yeah. thought it'd be too similar to that so they then they did this big over the top funeral which apparently happens down there. Well, I, I do have to laugh though at the fact that when he's like, you know, whose funeral is it? Yours, and then he like stabs him in his what, like hip, and that kills him. I it must be in a poisonous Poison knife, or knife. <laughs> knife. And the poor widow who we see later on, like, I wonder if the people on the streets of New Orleans don't know who she is. She has bad luck with husbands because she's constantly walking. Uh, that the widow street. was played by Bob Simmons. Right, gets punched in the face later on. Um, And then I do love the whole uh, scene with the snake and, you know, the whole voodoo-y on the island in the Caribbean. Although when the snake bites him, there's no wound at all on his neck. So that snake has um, (laughs) the most cleanest puncture wounds ever out of a snake. But I think my personal favourite of this whole situation, probably not one of my favourite opening sequences compared to a lot of the other ones, but I I just love the way it blends into the opening, which I know I'm jumping ahead, we'll get to that, but I just love the way how you've got the death of the guy and then it just, the way it blends into the, you know, when you were young and your heart was it open. Yeah, anyway, so. Used to sleep. (laughs) Living loudly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you're ditching that. Like Mary, twice. Mary, <laughs> see it twice. Uh, uh, what about you, Colin? I'm gonna have a bit of a different. I'm, I'm, I'm really surprised because when we started this whole thing, I thought Living Let Die was the one I was gonna dump all over. <clears throat> I actually love this opening sequence, and uh, as much as I, for years, disliked this movie. This was always one of my favorite opening sequences. I'd probably put it next to only Goldfinger for me as far as all the movies up until this point. Uh, the the assassination of the UN ambassador or whatever, I think that's just a really cool idea. It has a nice over-the-top sound effect in it. And then you have the fact the guy just sort of face plants and people are just sort of looking at him and like, what's wrong with this guy? <laughs> like, like nobody's really like, somebody died in front of us. It's just, this guy <laughs> ate something bad for lunch, apparently. Um <laughs> The the jazz funeral may be one of the coolest things I have ever seen in a movie. Uh, it's such a great idea, not only just to feature this jazz funeral, which is something that you know apparently is common and is real, but nobody really sees stuff like this. Like even today, if it, there's a lot of these Bond movies where you're seeing stuff, and we've talked about how well at the time this was kind of new and fresh because you know you didn't really have like the discovery channel or national geographic you didn't see all this but 
this is unusual even for today, but the the last kill in uh, San Monique is the one I want to talk about because you mentioned how the snake doesn't really even touch him. And that take was a uh, bit of trivia here. That take was actually, you can consider it more of an outtake because what happened is the guy uh, who was playing, what was his name? Bane? Uh, Bane's was the uh, agent. Yeah. He was so terrified of the snake that he passed out on the spot. So the take that we're seeing of him dying was the take of him passing out in fear of this snake that was there, which is why it looks like it doesn't bite him. But I think just knowing that trivia makes that last scene so much cooler. Wow, I didn't know that. You yeah, learn something new every day. Well, you do. then on that trivia as well, um, the, at one point uh, they say in the documentary one of the snakes uh, escapes and comes running at him while he's tied up. Um, and the snake it, runs, does it? Well, slithering and <laughs> everyone <laughs> every scene was running away and it was a big ordeal. But You hate snakes, Noah. Are you shitting yourself every time there's a snake on the screen? Uh, I started doing the count for the Kiss Kiss Bang Bang counting the amount of snakes, but <laughs> it got too many that I had to stop. Um, I stopped at two. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I hate snakes so much, and hopefully this is the last snake we have in Bond. I can't quite remember. Um, then, as you mentioned, Ben, cut into the opening titles, which is a great cut. Um, I love these titles with the flames, and you've got the black woman, and you've got the skulls. It just sums up the movie so well. Like Sometimes these titles are just completely random, uh, but then there's ones like Thunderball and this that just capture the movie so well so i really enjoy the opening title sequences and the song it's just amazing it's so good um i listen to all the songs except for die another day um just because they're bond songs like i'll listen all right i'm gonna listen to some of the songs now but this is probably the only one i actually listen to outside of just listening to it because it's bond it's such a great song um and I'm going to go out on a limb and say this has the best use of the theme throughout the film. They use it so well. Like in the boat chase, you've got the action, do-do-do, And then uh, when he's with Solitaire, you've got the kind of slower bit, and then you've got the girl at the club singing it. They just use the theme so well in this movie, and the song is just amazing. It's probably my favourite. I love everything about this sequence. I'd probably agree with you about use of the theme throughout the movie. It just fits very well. Although, as much as I don't like You Only Live Twice, I do think they use that very well in You Only Live Twice. Um, I just want to talk I'll set, talk separately about the song and the titles. I think the titles, this is maybe up until this point the best titles we've had. Um, I just love the way it plays with the actual music. So, like, as you were saying, you get this, like, beautiful black woman, like, straight away, you know, this zoom in on her. Big nipple shot as well, to <laughs> point out. Um <laughs> You knew I was going there. Um, zoom straight into her, and then the way it kind of like turns into the skull, the dun, yeah, right dun. like it, it's just amazing. And then it just it builds up to it, um, and you've got you know the the hands that are sort of clasped over the naked woman, and they open the hands, and oh, there's another naked woman, but her bum's blurred out. Like was this like the only way people got to watch porn in the 1970s? <laughs> like, oh, I'm going to see a bit of bum. Oh no, I didn't get to see a bit of bum. Um, but it's just, I think probably up to this point, this is the best opening titles and just the song. Like, I mean, if you actually analyze the lyrics, it's pretty shit, but it's not the lyrics. I think that make this song. It's the music. I mean, it's like three songs in one. Would this be the longest Bond song without anything sung in it? Like, cause there's just that whole period where it's just the music. Yeah. It plays instrumental. 
Yeah, it's, and it's it's amazing. It's just so good. I think on a Majesty's Secret Service winter. I was, I was just as soon as <laughs> Cole said instrumental, I'm like, hang on a minute, we had an instrumental. Um, and, I mean, this song is just famous outside of James Bond. Of course, when you've got Paul McCartney singing it with wings. Like, I mean, it was always going to be huge. Um, I think I was just reading here, before A View to a Kill, this was the highest... Um, charting Bond song. It made it to number two in America and number five in Australia and number two in Canada too, Colin. I'm just reading here. Um, and to me, it's also brought one of the greatest covers in the history of music. Guns N' Roses cover of this song is amazing. Um, but it's just this words cannot express how good this song is. Top three James Bond songs of all time. Um, and, you know, personal opinions aside, this and Goldfinger probably the most iconic James Bond themes in the history of the franchise. Yeah, and the interesting thing about this is you know, we've had a couple of discussions on the songs, and I think all of us would agree that there are Bond themes that, even though they're modern, they still sound like a classic Bond theme, like The World Is Not Enough. And then there's Stifle. modern Bond themes mm. that don't sound anything like <laughs> Bond. Die uh, another day. Die another day. <laughs> the, the funny thing is that this, this song, Live and Let Die, if you really deconstruct it, it does not sound anything like a Bond theme. It does not sound like it belongs in a Bond movie, and yet it's probably the one non-Bond-sounding theme that nobody questions. They're like, you know, it's a perfect Bond song. So every once in a while, you know, the right artist can get away with doing something uh, this outrageous, because it is a very unusual... Like, I think you were saying, no, it's like, it really is three songs in one, um, and it's got very odd construction to it, Uh such a brilliant song and again a huge part of the success of this movie will come down to that song i mean you could say it didn't reach number one like i think duran duran and madonna had number ones but i mean nobody remembers a view to a killer die another day the way they remember live and let die so this is i would say like you said ben along with gold thing the most iconic the really interesting thing about the titles for me is that if you're watching this without the music, these titles are pretty much carbon copy of what they did in Diamonds Are Forever and Man with the Golden Gun. It's just the exact same thing in all three, you know, a couple of shots. They kind of ditch the silhouettes for the most part, a few shots of images mixed with shots of women that fit the location. But there's something different about how these credits were edited together. And really what it was is they brought energy to this one. They could have just played this like they did in all the past Bond movies and really allowed the credits to exist on their own. But they made every single second here match the music. And that's what really, like you said, when it explodes into the skull, it goes along with the music. And it's almost like, you know, I, I, I think Maurice Binder was still doing the credits at this point, but it's almost like he was working with Paul McCartney at the time when they, they said, let's build the song for the, the title sequences. They just It's the perfect collaboration between a song and titles in this. And, there's just so much energy, and that's what I think this movie has that Diamonds Are Forever does into that Man with the Golden Gun doesn't have following this. It's just a very energetic movie. And the pre-title scene, the song, and the opening credits really set that up, as does the next scene. Uh, well, yeah, you mentioned the next scene, so let's jump into the movie proper, and we start with Bond in his apartment. The only other time we see that, I believe, is Sylvia, and I'm disappointed they didn't get Sylvia back for this one, because I think that would have been a nice touch if uh, Sylvia was there instead of this other random girl. Um, yeah, so M shows up at the apartment, uh, 
and tell us Bond uh, what we just saw in the pre-title sequence. And I love the quote. I rather liked Bane. We shared the same <laughs> shoemaker. <laughs> That's a great line. Um, and we got the mission briefing in the apartment, which means this is an urgent mission. Uh, Bond has to go. I like the coffee machine. Uh, and says, is that all it does? Like, <laughs> It's a coffee machine. It made coffee. <laughs> he is really pushy. <laughs> what did he expect it to do? Um, I think he's just old. He doesn't know what technology is. <laughs> and then there's a lot of great comedy here with Bond trying to hide Miss Caruso in the closet and like trying to distract M and Money Benny showing up. Um, like I really enjoyed this opening sequence. I think it's great kind of kickoff for Moore's Bond. Um, I was laughing at a lot of this, and then the magnetic watch, of course, uh, sheer magnetism, darling, to end it. But I think this is a great way to kick it off to uh, into the comedy era, I guess, and uh, so many great moments here. I think it's just fantastic that we see James Bond in his house. Like, I know we saw it earlier, but it's kind of like really like <laughs> James Bond getting out of bed, dressing gown, you're making coffee. Like, you know, this is a guy that we don't really get to see a whole lot of his life outside of, you know, being Bond. And, you know, it's just, I just think it's great. And he's got JB on his pajamas. Like, you know, like he's <laughs> very much into the fact that he is James Bond. Um, and, but it's like, it's interesting because each time we've been introduced to a Bond, we've always kind of had like a bit of a hidden face, a bit of like an iconic moment. Like, you know, obviously we had Connery at the table, you know, my name is Bond, James Bond. And then we get it similar with Lazenby, who's like kicking ass and coming out of the car. But this one, like, we don't really have Eddie. Um, you know, way of hiding that he's a James Bond. We're just straight away seeing him bed, um, which I thought was interesting. I, I love the line when he's like going to open the the door. You don't happen to. You're not married by any chance, are you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then, like, my biggest question this whole scene because it's a great scene, and I don't want to bag this scene out too much. But why is Money Penny even there? <laughs> like, couldn't M bring Q's gadgets in the first place? Like, how lazy is M? It's like, oh, money again as well. Like, he always makes to work in the middle of the night. <laughs> Poor money, Penny. Like, you know, she just has to get up to deliver a watch and then have to see, like, her beloved James Bond in bed with an Italian beauty. Um, but I just, I think it's fun to actually see James Bond in this situation rather than, you know, out and about kicking ass and being James Bond. Um, yeah, I think that this scene, again, it's like, like I said, the first three things that they do in this movie it just works perfectly to separate the movie from the Conneries just a little bit and really introduce this as like a new bond. Like it, it's funny because the bond movies, like we already said the seventies is where everything changed. Like diamonds of forever was the change in tone, but the Roger Moore ones really did start separating more from that whole sixties thing they had going on. And this is where the comedy really starts in bond. Um, I think that Roger Moore has said a lot himself about how his frustration and at least this and man with the golden gun, that, that they were still trying to write it too much as a Connery movie and some things didn't work for him. But the very first scene, like it's almost like they sat down with Roger Moore and said, let's map out the perfect scene for you because it's involving so much comedy, very physical. A lot of the facial expressions you were talking about, Ben, like just hilarious to watch. And just the scenarios, like, you can't picture... If, if this were a Sean Connery movie, Connery would, you know, have the girl sneaking out the back door. She wouldn't be hiding in the closet the whole time. And then Money Pity wouldn't be spotting her. And, you know, he wouldn't be using the, the watch gadget and the, or the, the magnet thing in the same way. Like, everything about this scene just works so well. Um, 
such great interaction with M too. I mean, I think the attitude of M is still there. Uh, well, at the same time, the scene is different. Like he's kind of poking fun at Bond a little bit for his coffee machine. I just, I just love everything about the scene. I think it's one of the best scenes in the movie. Um, after that, did, I don't know if you guys got it, but I definitely got Doctor No from Russell with Love vibes. Um, of that Bond gets picked up from the airport and then later on Bond's at his hotel inspecting it. Like we definitely lost a lot of that, but this kind of brings it back. Um, so there's Bond and there's the tarot cards over the plane. Nice bit of uh, 1973 uh, filming the techniques there. Um, and Bond yeah, getting picked up, getting a call from Felix in the car phone. Uh, and then we have Whisper randomly showing up in true uh, fashion of Dr. No from Russia with Love. Um, and there's a bit of a car chase here, the poison dart. Uh, I love uh, Moore's reaction to the driver. When he's like, what are you doing? Uh, when he's steering off course. It was great. Great uh, acting and comedic timing from Moore there. Um, uh, let, let's just talk briefly about that little scene before we move on. Best Felix ever, David Hedison. Hello, Ooh, David. Oh, really? I love David Hedison. He's great. He's good. And, like, look, I know we're going to rip shit into License to Kill in a few of these episodes, and I'll be the only one defending it, but I think he has the most rounded Felix performance in a movie when it gets to License to Kill, but we'll get to that. Um, no, so I, I love... No, <laughs> he's no John Terry. He's um, no um, but yeah, I, I like this whole scene again. New York, hello, excited. Um, and whisper. Oh my god, is he like? Is he the worst henchman <laughs> ever? Well, he's not Marcus. <laughs> well, I, I would debate that. Like, he's got the worst like quip ever. Like, oh, he can't speak loudly. <laughs> oh, I'm scared. This, like, is it Goldfinger because he likes gold, or did he like gold because he was named Goldfinger? Like, is he named Whisper because he can't talk? Or I think it's more he was probably named with. Like, I don't reckon that. I think that's a nickname. But like, it's it's shit because all it leads to is just lots of awkward. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> it, yeah, it really is confusing, and I don't understand the uh, exact decision on having a henchman that can't talk. Is he in the book? Or is this that you... I think the name Whisper is, but it's not, like, that prominent. Yeah. Right. Okay. I do I do like the chase sequence, so um and the the sort of the, the dart and then the crash and I, I, I enjoy that because again New York, I love New York and it's just um it's a great sequence. Um and he's like he's like easy Charlie, let's get there in one piece. Is that what he says? Yeah, I think Yeah. Um and yeah, I, I, I enjoy this scene, it's fun and I'm just mo- most excited about um Mr. Hedison getting introduced. Yeah, um, Whisper in the book, I reread the... It's been so long since I had read both Diamonds Are Forever and Live and Let Die that I reread them over the last couple of weeks. And Whisper is in the book, like you said, Noah, he's he's very kind of minor and insignificant. But the one thing I noticed is that he has that kind of soft-spoken voice, but the way it's interpreted in this movie is all wrong because <laughs> it should be almost like a Batman type thing, like a, like a soft whisper growl, like, I'm Whisper, you know? Like something that sounds menacing. And in this... He's just this soft-spoken guy, and I can imagine. Well, like, can anybody imagine his job interview that he had with Kananga? Like, he answers an ad in the newspaper looking for assassins, you know, overweight henchmen, and he shows up and he's like, "So, 
Uh, the first job I want you to do, I want you to drive a car and shoot a man with a dart. You think you could do that? What's that? <laughs> can, you, can you speak up, please? Please. <laughs> Why did he hire this guy? This is a I very want the whisper backstory of what led him to not being able to talk loud. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> did anybody see the movie Scrooge with Bill Murray? No. No. Oh, okay. Go out and watch the movie Scrooge with Bill Murray, which is basically a Christmas carol, like a modern Christmas carol. And the kid that's playing kind of the modern version of Tiny Tim in that movie, he just doesn't speak because he doesn't want to. And the very end of the movie, it always reminded me of, like, this was Kid Whisper, where he just goes, God bless us, everyone. So if you watch Scrooge, you'll totally see the backstory of Whisper in uh, Tiny Tim. <laughs> that's what I'm going to go with. Uh, uh yeah, I don't, I don't know if I love the the sequence with the, the car and the assassination. Um, it is a little bit too over the top and kind of implausible for me. Kind of would have worked a lot better if, you know, they just had a guy in the backseat shoot him or shoot Bond or anything. Like, there's certain things Guy Hamilton does where, again, I mean, it's the Guy Hamilton on acid problem. Um, this is one of those things. Uh, briefly to talk about Felix... I don't know if I consider him the best Felix. I mean, Jack Lord, Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey Wright are definitely up there. But I think I said on Diamonds Are Forever that if you combine, you know, the Diamonds Are Forever, I forget his name already. Uh, Norman uh, Burton. Yeah, Burton. So if you combine him with David Hedison, I think you would have the perfect Felix Leiter. But I think what Felix is missing in this is just a little bit of that attitude. And again, a bit of a disappointment that he was so involved in the book and he's kind of just a background character here. Yeah, he really is the star of that uh, novel. But he gets a fair bit to do compared to some like Thunderball and uh, that. But, yeah, uh, we'll touch more on David Hedison, especially in a Dalton film. But um, we have Bond visiting the occult voodoo shop, uh, very punny of them in New York. And um, he sees Whisper in there and then there's Kananga's men and he chases after them in the taxi and... uh, can you uh, take me to Harlem? Is that what he has? <laughs> hey, man, for 20 bucks, I'll take you to a KKK cookout. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is probably one of my favourite lines of the movie. I was laughing so much at that. <laughs> and then uh, Bond heads to Harlem. Um, you sure you want to go there? Uh, into the filet of soul. Um which apparently is a franchise of bars, as we'll learn later on. Um and um, turns out Taxi Driver is really a bad guy. I like that little touch that uh, he can't trust anyone in this film. Um, and Bond in the bar, and then we have the the, se- the wall moving into the secret room, which is such a more more film uh, thing to happen, but I love it. And we have Solomon Solitaire, and uh, Moore's first Bond, James Bond, which is one of the best in the history of the series, I think. I love how it kicks into the main theme, Um and we're introduced to Teehee. Uh, I know, Ben, you're a big Teehee guy. Oh, I love Teehee. Uh, crushing Bond's gun, which is great. Um, and a nice bit of Bond and Solitaire in there. Uh, some moments, kind of the first bit that kicks off their storyline, I guess. And they kind of had good chemistry, I think. But we'll touch more on Solitaire. Um, and then Bond is taken out the, into the back streets and he is saved by Harold Strutter, a CIA agent. Um, I love when he's in the car and he says, a genuine Felix Leiter, illuminating. <laughs> there are so many good more lines and he delivers them so uh, so good. And then we learn that 
from Felix Kananga and Mr. Big have some sort of connection to each other and Bond is in the next flight to San Monique. So we covered a fair bit there. I'll just say um, I love Teehee. I think he's great. Um, he kind of stole uh, Dr. No's claw hand, but uh, Dr. No wasn't using it, so he may as well. <laughs> um, I love just this film. We already touched on Whisper. I'm not a huge fan of Kananga, but I like how this film is kind of, it's not just one villain and a henchman. It's kind of Teen Kananga, like you've got Teehee and Whisper and Solitaire and uh, Baron Samity. So it's kind of this whole group of henchmen rather than just the one. So I really enjoy that. And Teehee just has so much great uh, screen presence and so many good lines. And he's so menacing but still being comedic. Um, and the other thing I'll just touch on is I really enjoyed the short-lived uh, moments from Harold Strutter. I kind of wish he was the main ally in this film because this is really this is the black exploitation film that was that the Shaft era of filmmaking. Um, so to have this black CIA agent, CIA agent ally Harold Strutter would have been great if he was in more of this film. I think, but yeah, there we've covered a huge chunk of there. A lot to talk about there. You can just cover the whole movie there. Done. <laughs> the entire first act's gone. <laughs> wow. Um, well, you, you mentioned the black black exploitation era, and I think obviously important we raise that point because I mean this was really at that the height of that sort of um, type of movies that were really big at the time, and of course we know that Bond has a habit of kind of adapting to the times of the movies. We see that in about six years' time in the uh, nineteen seventy nine movie that we'll get to, no doubt. Um, but I mean, I love the whole sort of sequence um, that begins. I love Felix's reaction when he's being told what happened and he's on that phone and there's just his silence and he's just like, you what? (laughs) (laughs) He says, he says something like, get me a mug in a pimp mobile. Is that? I don't know if I've written that down correctly. I don't remember that. Some oh, just, CIA I'm, slang. Oh, yeah, you know, on the streets of Harlem or something <laughs> like that. And they're spying, obviously, on Kananga, and he does that fancy thing where he's like, take a letter, please, just so we can, like, bugger off. Um, but, I look, Kananga is... I like Kananga, but I don't like Kananga. It's... It's interesting because I, I think he's... I like villains who are evil and you just see a psychotic and are just, you know, have got that. And I think towards the end, particularly in the final scene, you really get to see a bit of that from him. But in the lead up, I mean, he's a prime minister, isn't he, of like San Monique. So yeah. again, like, this is like the poor citizens of this country. Like, you've got this really evil prick as your leader. And the whole Mr. Big thing, like, come on, that's just that's the worst disguise it looks ever. Exactly like. <laughs> it's so bad. Um, I do like more in the voodoo shop when he gets that snake and he's like, could you gift wrap it for me, please? Lengthwise. <laughs> And I'm so disappointed. That's a big plot. We never get to see what he did with the snake. Like, he doesn't go back for it. I'm so sad. He gave it to um, Felix to give to him as a wedding present. Because Felix wanted that Yes. Um, I do love the taxi driver. I love his um, sideburns. Like, they are <laughs> epic. I want to get sideburns like that. And I do love the fact... I've written here when Bond walks into uh, the bar, stiff upper-class white guy in Harlem bar. <laughs> like, he was so out of place. That is, oh, and I love the fact he's like, bourbon and water, please, no ice. That's extra, man. (laughs) (laughs) What sort of bar charges you more to get, like, less in a cup? (laughs) 
Um, and I do love the fact that when he's in that booth and he like spins around and you got this really weird cut that all of a sudden he's just like in front of a wall and he's like, oh, oh okay. Um, and you mentioned Solitaire, um, her introduction when she's like, and you said it better than I'm going to say it, like, I'm Solitaire. Like, I can't say it. <laughs> but it's pretty iconic. And obviously Jane Seymour, one of probably the most successful um, actresses to come out of James Bond. I mean, and I know I'm not just doing this to bring up Die Another Day. You'd argue Halle Berry, but she was more successful before she got into Bond rather than after it. And I think Jane's because it was introducing Jane Seymour. So we obviously know how famous she went on. She's beautiful. Jane Seymour is yeah. amazing. Um, but yeah, Teehee, just amazing. Again, I like my sadistic henchman. He reminds me a lot of Odd Job. He doesn't say a whole lot, but he's just like, you just look at him and you know he's just going to chop your dick off for no <laughs> reason at all. Like, he just enjoys the torture and the, the sadistic nature of being a henchman, and that's why I love my henchman. And Tee is just awesome. And he's got a good quip. He, he speaks loudly and he has a claw hand. <laughs> so, fuck you, Whisper. <laughs> Yeah, he's got a, a claw hand uh, that you could still see his original fist and wrist twirling around his <laughs> yeah. side. Yeah, that looked really bad. <laughs> yeah, I'll give it to that. That's pretty shit. Bad disguise. Oh, uh, <laughs> still some budgetary problems here. Um, just, I, I want to talk more about Kananga later on because I'll have lots to say. But again, this is where I'm getting really surprised because I thought I'd be the one complaining about, you know, there's these Guy, Hamil- Guy Hamilton 70s trilogy here and I think Kananga is one of my favorite villains, you know, not just of the movies up until this point. I mean, I might put him pretty close to my top five of all time. I think he's an amazing villain. Uh, the Mr. Big thing, you know, it was, uh, it kind of works. It kind of doesn't. The makeup makes him look either like a really bad burn victim or a guy who's just sweating <laughs> profusely. Uh, <laughs> they probably could have found a better way to do that. Um, yeah. The, the scene with him in the occult shop, I, I really wish I could figure out why it makes me laugh. But the fact, maybe it is just, like you said, the stiff white guy in the middle of Harlem walking into this occult voodoo shop and strolling around. And then he comes back, which is basically a children's toy. Like, he probably was thinking he was being really smart. Like, let me pick up something that's probably some wicked, you know, uh, uh, voodoo curse thing. And they're like, yeah, this is from our children's section, sir. (laughs) I don't know why that always makes me laugh, but it's just great. Um, so many honky mentions. <laughs> oh, I didn't mention honky. How did I not mention honky? I, I wrote a couple of them down. Uh, uh, you got a honky on your tail. It's like following a cue ball. Uh, take <laughs> this honky out and waste him. Uh, <laughs> it's just honky all over the place here. So good. I mean, there are movies that are badly dated. And the whole, you know, early 70s camp thing doesn't usually work but for some reason it's amusing in this because i think that they realized when they made this this movie was going to be campy and they they weren't trying to make it anything it wasn't so uh, so many of these like stereotypes really do work for me um tihi aside from the claw like you guys said a great villain i mean he is just completely sadistic and he's also another one that was in the book and just like he was described um, I also really like like this opening scene with despite the Mr. Big disguise, you know, the opening scene with Solitaire here, this scene and the next one with Solitaire, uh, the ones with Solitaire, Mr. Big and Bond, they're kind of they took the original scene from the book, which was just such an intense scene. And they really combined the, or, or separated those two and made them to two separate scenes. Um, these scenes work so well, because I think that uh 
the Yafit the Koto who plays Mr. Big Kananga. I mean, whether you have an opinion or not on how well his characters developed, I mean, the guy really gave this role everything he had. And I think as, as cheesy as the idea of Mr. Big is, I think that he really pulls it off. And Moore's humor in this is so great. Um, this whole sequence uh, here in Harlem is really good. You know, I, the location something you don't see. And uh, yeah, I mean, all the way up until Felix. Like, I, I'm, I'm surprised you mentioned the thing with Felix, too, with his whole... He did what? Like, cause again, it's one of those <laughs> odd moments that just always makes me laugh, just imagining what's going on on the other side. We should point out that uh, Kananga isn't even in the books. It's just Mr. Big as the main uh, baddie. And but in- interestingly enough, though, just to cut in really quickly, I I found, especially on rereading it, rereading it after watching the movie this past week, that the character in the book has more in common with the Kananga of the movie than he does with the Mr. Big. So yeah. I-, I will say we still have the same villain. They kind of just changed his location and changed his name. Well, if I'm not mistaken, uh, doesn't he have, like, grey skin or something along those lines in the book? And I think that's where they tried to capture it in the movie, but it just looks horrible. Um, yeah, I think he was supposed right. to have, like, a really, like, abnormally large head, and his skin tone <laughs> was supposed to be kind of unusual and greyish, like he said. Uh, that was also, I mean, again, if we're talking a little bit about the books the idea of the deformed villains. I mean, it didn't start in Casino Royale, really. This was Ian Fleming's first attempt to have a weird disformity about the villains, which would pretty much just become common in all of them later on. And Still a better deformity than Whisper. <laughs> and wasn't he supposed to be big as well? <laughs> That's one thing. Very yeah, big. is good, but I wish they had this like massive like Fat Albert type guy. Um, as... <laughs> hey, hey, hey. <laughs> you want Fat Albert? You're complaining about <laughs> That'll be a great villain. You're like, oh, hey, hey, Mr. Bond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it would have been good if Mr. B and Kananga were big guys. Um, still, I'd still probably say if you had a hey, 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 it's better than Whisper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is, that is Whisper's fast. catchphrase. We just haven't heard it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, while we're talking about the book, we should say this actually does cover a fair bit of the book, but a lot of it is dropped. Uh, like, a lot of it is left to License to Kill. But between this and License to Kill, they pretty much cover the entire book. Um, it's, it's not Sam Monique, it's Jamaica. Uh, yeah, Jamaica. And it's not Quarrel Jr., it's Quarrel. Um, and Strangways is in there, and Mary. Um, ah! Yeah. <laughs> but I think they do a pretty good job of covering it. They have dropped a lot, but they retain a lot of the original stuff. Um, so let's move on. And we had, as I said, Bond heading to Sanger and Mr. Big's connection. Uh, that's the introduction of Baron Samity uh, dancing, prancing along at the resort. Uh, there. Oh, is he prancing? Yeah, have you seen the guy that the, the way that guy moves? Uh, oh, he is. Yeah, he's flamboyant. Let's about, <laughs> <laughs> we may as well. We've talked about the other henchmen, so we may as well. While we're introduced to him, Baron Samini, I think he's so good. He doesn't really have too much to do with the plot, but I love this team can anger, and I think he, this film definitely has that kind of spiritual voodoo vibe to it. So I think this guy fits that so well. Um, we can talk about him more as we go along, but Baron Samini, I think he's great. He he is yeah I I don't think he serves a whole lot to the plot really but he he's he he really I does owns he owns the screen whenever he's on it 
and like we might joke that he's flamboyant or whatever, but that adds to his character. I think he's great, and like his laugh, like I mean, that's just it's amazing, and he's just so out there. And I, I love him. And as much as I might not like this film, a lot of the characters I really do enjoy. And I love how um, he plays it. Jeffrey Holder, who sadly, sadly only died within the last 12 or so months, actually. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I, I do like me some Baron Samity. Yeah, and Jeffrey Holder, um, you know, his background was basically as a dancer and a choreographer. And uh, so, how he actually got in this movie, I don't know. But he went on to become like very famous as a, a spokesman for Seven Up for like years <laughs> upon years. Of uh, course, <laughs> I don't know. The one thing that I was disappointed with on this, and maybe it's because I maybe not seeing on a big screen or something. I think they just filmed it wrong. But he was huge in real life. Like this guy's six foot six. And he's in this movie with a lot of very short actors. Like we said, Yaka Koto's you know, a very short actor. Uh, Jane Seymour's quite short. Why is it he doesn't come across like more of a giant in this movie? I think that's the one thing that always bothered me about him. Um, this, If you talk about you know a guy that could have really fit the Mr. Big personality, uh, if they wanted to do two roles, this guy would have been a great Mr. Big. But he just has so much energy as Baron Samdi and it's one of those roles that kind of bothered me when I was younger, when I first saw this movie. And maybe it had to do more with how outlandish this movie was. Uh, and the fact that he was clearly, you know, more of a goofy villain. But he's just so energetic and so charismatic and he can do nothing but laugh. Like, that laugh is by far the greatest psychotic oh, the laugh the I've so... ever heard. Oh, on the you, train. You put it in our intro, Colin. I'll put it in the intro for the the extra, I guess, for this episode, like over and over again, <laughs> because that laugh is just so... I want that as a ringtone now. <laughs> I, still re- <laughs> I still remember uh, always playing as Baron Samity in the GoldenEye uh, game. Like You could play yeah. as him in the multiplayer mode, which is pretty cool, with Top Hat and all. Um, I was always Jaws or Odd Job. Jaws. Well, I was Knickknack. And... <laughs> yes! Knack was... As you should be! Knickknack was yeah. on there? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it was in Goldeneye. I know he was in the Nightfire one. Yeah. I swear he was on Goldeneye too, it's wasn't he? It's been a while. I know Dr. No was there. Um... Yeah, just, you know, rest in peace, number four. <laughs> don't think Dent was on that game, <laughs> Or Vargas. Whisper wasn't. Yeah, Whisper, Vargas, Hands, and Dent were definitely not on it. <laughs> uh, anyway, we'll, we'll talk about Goldeneye one day, the game. Um, so, and the film. Yeah. So moving on, we have Bond checking into the hotel, and we have uh, Mrs. Bond has been expecting you. I was just thinking then when we talked about <laughs> the, the stuffed taxi derby Tracy just sitting in his... Uh, <laughs> hotel room that we were talking about that bond yeah she's just having a rest so i was disappointed we didn't see tracy there um then we have bond inspecting the hotel room dr no style uh snake snake being let into the room when um when bond is in the bath uh there's room service from a whisper (laughs) here's your Here's your champagne. What? <laughs> you did that knickknacks accent for some reason. <laughs> well, I don't know what Whisper's accent is. We've never heard him. Um, and that's really an awkward scene because it's just Roger Moore saying, huh? Over and over and over again. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know who decided that this was a good idea. Um, so then we had the Bond using the shaving cream and uh, the lighter to kill the snake good on you bond um 
Um, even introduction of Rosie Carver. Um, Boo. Yes. Talk about her no, in a minute. Yes. Um, and just to end off this scene that we'll talk about is <laughs> the hat warning with the feathers. And the, uh, I don't have the full quote here, but he lost a fight with a chicken. What's the full quote there, Ben? You have- oh, it's just a hat, darling, belonging to a small-headed man with limited means who lost a fight with a chicken. <laughs> I like to think that's Nick Knack's hat. Um, that is the best quote ever. Yeah, that was really funny. Uh, so th- there's not a whole lot going on there, but we can talk about it. But let's talk about Rosie Carver. She is the oh. most useless agent in the history of ever. Uh, I thought uh, Goodnight was bad, but she is just so pathetic. But, of course, you have to have a black uh, bongo in this film because that's what it's all about. And... Originally, Solitaire was going to be black, but they decided to go with the original and have it white um, like it was in the book, um, or her, I should say. And, yeah, so they put a Rosie Carver in to make up for that. <laughs> I will give you that she is funny. I'll, I'll give you that. But she's just so useless and annoying that I was not upset when she died at all. Um, so I've got mixed feelings about her, but she's just so random and weird and pathetic as, a, as an agent. She's got to be the most useless Bond girl ever. Like, <laughs> oh, Come on. Like, I'll defend Goodnight in the next movie, but not bloody... Para, what, not Paris Carver's on that. <laughs> <laughs> Rosie, Fuck. Rosie Carver. Like, Paris Carver's better than Rosie Carver. Like, Elliot Carver's Stetton. <laughs> yes. Like, oh, my God. I've got a feeling, Noah, that Colin's about to go on some massive <laughs> spiel about how she's better than Tiffany Case. Yeah, like, he does. Uh, oh. oh, no. <laughs> oh, come on. But I, I do love this whole... Scene of Connery in a hotel. Uh, Connery. <laughs> what was he doing there? <laughs> he was Mrs. Bond. Um, uh, more in the hotel room. There's something about bloody the 70s. What is it about baths in the 70s? Or does James Bond just not like showers? I was going to mention that. Don't. Yeah, I mean, no, no more bath talk. <laughs> we had bad and you only lived <laughs> Well, like, I forgot to mention in Diamonds Are Forever, we get the scene when he's in the hotel and he's, like, in a bath and he's got, like, a little table where he's, you, like, going Vegas, through. You're not... <laughs> yeah. And now he's got another table where he's doing the shaving. Like, 70s love their bath tables. <laughs> but this whole sequence of the snake coming through and then he gets the flamethrower, um, which is great. And I had to double-check with uh, both Colin and I if we can that as a kill or not, because I couldn't remember if we counted the tarantula or not. Um, so, but we didn't get the dramatic music as much as the din, 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 when he killed the um, tarantula. Um, I do like the uh, interaction between uh, Bond and Carver. I do love the fact that he burns her. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like with a cigarette lighter <laughs> And I, I love Like you mentioned the hat line But I absolutely love it When she goes in And she screams There's a snake It's like you should never go in there Without a mongoose <laughs> It's just so good This is what I was talking before About more He's He's just got such a unique way of delivering his lines. Like, he never seems forced in delivering his one-liners. And maybe I might put this out in a limb here, is that Moore's the only one who never really seems forced. Like, Connery did yeah. the, does it great. Brosnan does it great. But there are ones where both of them do it where you feel like they're forced. Whereas Moore, I don't know if he ever seems like they're forced. They just seem so natural. Um, but... 
Yeah, look, fucking Rosie Carver. Like, get out of here. She's useless. She's annoying. She's just so, like, fuck off. I would... I would rather have plenty O'Toole on my screen for 30 seconds than fucking, fucking Rosie Carver. <laughs> wow. Oh, I'll, I'll reserve my real comment for that. We're off air. Matt, I, I, I'll, I'll get on to Rosie Carver in a second, but uh, I'm supposed to be the one who finds humor in people burning, and I just find it really bizarre <laughs> that you said... I love that he burns her when she enters the room. Like, just this sick, sadistic person is like, he's burning people now. No more slapping them around. Room service, burn. <laughs> um, yeah, the bath. Let's talk about the bath for a second because I was going to bring that up. We did forget it in Diamonds of Forever. I don't know if it's just that I have a real terrible image of now because of Ben and his bath talk. Um, but seeing Bond in a bathtub between Diamonds of Forever and this, it just it does not work for me. It does not seem like a Bond thing to do. Like I think this is a shower guy. We we need to put a poll up on our site. Does Bond take bubble baths in showers? This just doesn't work for me. Not to mention. What is he doing in the bath? He doesn't get... He doesn't wash his hair. He doesn't wash anything. He's just sitting in water while he shaves. <laughs> so I don't know if this is just some random practice he has when he shaves. That he needs to get wet from the waist down. But it just... Oh, it makes no sense to me. Um, the snake thing is really cool. Like, to, to have another animal kill in there. Uh, to, the, the, the hat. I mean, there's some fun stuff in here. But let's just, let's just get on to Rosie Carver now. Rosie Carver is kind of that one character that would fit more in Diamonds of Forever because she is kind of a dumb character and she is useless. I mean, but I, here's of. my defense of Rosie Carver. I'm going to debate this for a second. When we have Tiffany Case, she is constantly changing sides in Diamonds of Forever and there's no explanation. There's never an explanation as to why she's in the diamond smuggling business. There's never an explanation as to why she suddenly starts working for the good guys like she so poorly delivers that line. There's no explanation as to why she's back for Blofeld or why she's back for Bonnaby and it's just constantly flip-flopping. At least, Rosie, we have that explanation later on in the movie. I'm probably jumping a little bit ahead here, but we have the explanation later on for her saying why she's doing this. So the fact that she's useless in a way, we'll get into the explanation more later, but this was all kind of a cover for her. So I'm going to kind of make Rosie Carver sound more intelligent than maybe she should, but she's sort of yep. playing useless at this point because she's supposed to be playing Bond. So uh, aside from that, I mean, I think that the actress, Gloria Hendry, I mean, she has a lot of humor in this role. Um, the interplay with Bond is great. Um, uh, this woman is jacked too. Like the one disappointment we missed out on is like, she is so ripped. Like she should be the one in the action scenes here. Like I wanted to see her take on bond in a fight, uh, not just him flipping her over and her freaking out. Cause she saw a hat. Like she looks like somebody <laughs> who should probably be able to defend herself. I think that, that sums up Rosie's. Yes. She saw a hat. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> um, so, well, we might as well talk about it while we're talking about it. I'm a little confused. So, is she a CIA, a CIA agent who got caught by Mr. Big Kananga and then has to work for him because she fears for her life? Or is she a Kananga agent who is 
posing as a CIA agent. I was a bit confused by that. Well, and, I thought it would be the former, wouldn't it? Like, Well, that's what I thought, but I'm not sure. I mean, the idea of the character is similar to Strawberry Fields in Quantum of Solace. This is kind of her first assignment, so she's not that experienced. Um, and obviously we find out later on that it's sort of the fear of the whole voodoo curse thing. They really played that up on her. So I think that what it's alluding to is that she was an actual agent and they got to her very early on. And like so many other people there, they played up on the whole voodoo curse thing and scared her. And that's really the plot of the movie is that they have these very convincing things all over the island to scare people into this whole curse. And that through that, she decided, well, I have to follow what they're telling me to do. So she is an agent that was turned by them. Can I just ask a quick question? And maybe we debate this more so at the end of the movie in our Kiss Kiss Bang Bang count. But we see her, like, scared, spend the night with me, oh, darling, yes, whatever. But we never see any implication that they have sex. Do they have sex here or not? Um, Well, the fact, I think, later on when it's showing them, you know, right before she dies... if they didn't the first time, they were about to the second. So I would say they're yeah, comfortable. I counted it. Yeah. So you counted it? Because yeah. I didn't. So I just yeah. wanted to. Okay. All right. Let's move on. Uh, we have the next day. Bond at breakfast receives a message and we go down to the docks. Uh, let's talk about another character introduced here. There's a great use of the theme here. The what does it matter to you? That kind of theme. Instrumental here. Um, and we meet <laughs> Quarrel Duke. Yay! Uh, Really? Yay? Um, yay? It's Quarrel! <laughs> yay? No, it's not. <laughs> it's, 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 it's Quarrel's sport! We will point out... Uh, sport! <laughs> but well, the reason child. the character exists is because Quarrel is introduced in the Live and Let Die novel, which is the second novel, and then dies in Doctor No. Mm. But... <laughs> It just seems bizarre that they felt the need to have this character because they've strayed from the book so much in Diamonds Are Forever, uh, You Only Live Twice. Like, it feels weird that they felt the need to do this. And this isn't even Jamaica. <laughs> this is Sam Monique. Um, They're neighbours, Noah. And <laughs> was Quarrel 4 when he had Quarrel Jr.? Yeah. <laughs> this guy's older than Quarrel. They start them young in Jamaica, okay? <laughs> uh, I'm not a fan. I think it's an insult to the Quarrel name. I think they. I just thought you'd love characters. it. No, I was so upset with this Quarrel Junior because Quarrel is such has so much screen presence, and Quarrel Junior, I've already forgotten anything he does, and he's just so boring. Has no chemistry. Yeah, no chemistry. Doesn't do anything. Does more stuff than Rosie Carver. Uh, yeah, Quarrel is one of the best uh, allies, and Quarrel Junior sucks balls. I hated him. Well, way, surely they had to, like, have some random person on a boat take them somewhere, so they thought, well, we may as well tie it up somehow by getting Quarrel Jr. I wish they got the actor from Dr. No when Dent jumps on the boat and says, take me to the crab key. No, take me. Okay. <laughs> I wish they got that character to play Quarrel Jr. Just to interrupt for a second, Roy Stewart, who plays Quarrel Jr., was 12 years younger than John Kitzmiller, who played Quarrel Sr., so, well, I guess the youngest daddy's like nine. Yeah. <laughs> he just fought, they fought it really mum could be like 30. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> look, yeah, I, I give it to you. Quarrel Jr. is no quarrel, 
But like, I say yay because it's like, I don't know, I love these continuity things where you get like, oh, they were related to Quarrel, yay! <laughs> but, um, and I love the fact that later on when he's blowing shit up and there's lots of fire, I'm just picturing him like, that's revenge for my dad. <laughs> ah! You're like burning field in Jamaica somewhere. Um, but it's random, but I like it. Like, I like the whole situation on the boat where it looks like he's about to choke Bond and she's all like, oh, where can I get changed? Close off! Like, shut the fuck up. And then... <laughs> That's like, like my then... favourite Rosie Carver moment. <laughs> oh, what? Taking her clothes off? Well, <laughs> also, the uh, the way she says it, where she's like, me? Clothes off? Where? Like, she's working in the Caribbean. What language does she expect him to be speaking? I thought your favorite bit was where she got burnt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I love the fact that, like, when Bond turns around and goes, you haven't met my friend, Quarrel Junior. <laughs> like, uh, anyway, but that's I don't have anything else to add on that. I just love the fact that we've got Quarrel Junior. Um, the reason that I think we can't accept this as Quarrel Jr. is because other than giving him the Quarrel Jr. name, there is no similarity at all. I mean, this character Quarrel Jr. a boat? He drives a boat. <laughs> he has zero personality. He barely speaks in the movie. The only thing he really has is that kind of weird attitude when Rosie is asking him a question and he's just playing dumb and not wanting to answer. Other than that, I mean, you could have called this a different character and it, nobody ever would have looked at this movie and said... Hey, that character, uh, Bert, you know, has is kind of a little bit like Quarrel. I mean, nobody would ever draw those comparisons. If you're going to put Quarrel Jr. in a movie, make him like Quarrel. I mean, it would have been a perfect opportunity. Do more than just give him the name. They should um, have just called him Pinder. Pinder, yeah, or or Pussella Jr. Like Pussella Jr. <laughs> Why don't we have Bond more juniors Jr. here? Three we could have Hans. Jr. <laughs> we know there's no Vargas Jr. because Vargas does not make love. But uh, we could have had some other juniors. Zenya on a top senior. I think we were missing uh, a line there with Rosie uh, with Coral Jr. I wish he went, Do you want me to break her arm? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Are you Coral Jr.? Maybe. <laughs> there's a couple of uh rosie carver moments i'm gonna mention here because again i love like every rosie oh. carver moment and again, there's only like two like, in the movie well i'm i'm not disagreeing with you guys that she is useless because again she knows she's useless like one of the best lines of this movie was her saying that uh you know i'm gonna be completely useless to you and then bond says i'm sure we can kick you into shape i mean she knows she's useless and th- there was the other moment where um you know, she said that her first assignment was Baines and Bond's like, it's a relief to know that I'm next in line for the same kind of aid. I mean, there's so much humor with her character. And again, like I said, I love that whole part. It was like me close off where like these people aren't speaking different languages here. I mean, she's been she's working there. She should know this. It's so funny to me. Uh, Coral Jr., though, on the other hand, like, as I said, complete waste. This should have been like just like we said, Pussfeller or anything. I mean, just make it a Puss new Fella character. Jr. Yeah, Pussfella Junior. That would have been good if the filet of, uh, of soul of soul clubs <laughs> were Pussfellas because we talked about how he's franchising across Jamaica and Turkey. So New Orleans Pussfella fish. <laughs> what, if the, what if the cab driver just all of a sudden turned around here? Like we know he pops up later, but what if the cab driver turned around and he's like. You're headed into San Monique, you know? Like you're gonna stick out like a cue ball. Like that guy, that would have been a better character to bring back. Just not Quarrel Jr. Yeah, agreed. Um 
so then after that, you have these kind of cutbacks between on the boat uh, and Solitaire's mansion with her weird captain and mind-reading abilities. Um, then you have Bond and Rosie in a car. I was wondering where they got that from. Like, they just sailed over to this other island, and then they've got this car. Um, Coral Jr. is a man of many talents. <laughs> and then Bond outing Rosie and says, I'll kill you if you don't tell me. Uh, Rosie escapes and is killed. Boo-hoo. Yay! <laughs> uh, Solomitaire uh, is there making her predictions. Then we have one of my favourite scenes, Bond on the hang glider, which I also <laughs> wrote, where did you get that from? <laughs> Uh, here's my trusty hang glider. Like, Quarrel, again, is a man of many talents. But that's a great one where he kicks the guy off the cliff uh, and then he changes outfits seamlessly. Uh, Bond sneaks in and he, he, here's the moment that was mentioned on our Facebook page in like week one of existing was Bond tricking Solitaire. Um, and we add another one to the count there. And... She supposedly loses her power. <laughs> which she loses more than that. Yeah. This is something I like about this film, though, that it's kind of like, is there really magic or is it just made up? Like, It's kind of this blurred line of if she actually had any power. And I like that there's that kind of supernatural element to the film. Um, and we learn that Kanga is going to kill Solitaire, so she teams up with Bond. We'll, we'll end it there. Um I'm not a huge Solitaire fan. I find it to be quite bland, but I do like the chemistry between the two. Um, and I like the, I like the idea of the character, like this voodoo kind of captured girl, uh, but I just don't think Jane Seymour plays it very well. But all that kind of scene there, Rosie's death and then Bond tricking Solitaire with the cards, which is kind of a bit... Uh, but we'll debate that because we have had discussions on that off air. But uh, what, what about that, Ben? Well, in the lead up, I one thing I say about Rosie Carver is that she's fucked either way. Like, you know, they'll kill me if I don't. If I do, well, I'll kill you if you don't. Like, yeah, let's wow. Hmm. Great, great this options. Is, yeah. Um, and we you didn't really mention uh, when Solitaire's doing the cards and Kananga's like, "It's a death. It's a death." And she's like. It's death, and it's not death. And then she says, oh, well, it was his de- her death or whatever. Um, yeah, so I don't really have much. Let Colin talk about Carver because she's dead. Move on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the kind bit I've written here, uh, he's a kite dancing in Harry <laughs> Why didn't you mention that, Noah? Come yeah, on. I was expecting, expecting you to bring that one up. Um, I think the whole point, Kananga's just horny and wants to have sex with Solitaire. And, you know, oh, if I decide you are to lose it, you will lose it to me. <laughs> uh, like, hmm, what's he talking about? The whole card situation, um, you know, yeah, he tricks her. But as we saw earlier, the card was picked earlier on that was the lovers. And clearly she's been thinking about that the whole time. And as he says, doesn't he say something like, you knew it was always going to be, and she's pretty much like, yes. And she so, does do it a second time as well, straight up. Yeah, well, like, so, within, by choice. Within, th- within three seconds of regretting it, she's like, oh, can you give me another lesson? Like, okay, then clearly she was against her will. 
Um, so, look, sorry, Catherine, we love you, but that argument's mute. Um, <laughs> well, it, it is a bit sketchy. Like, we'll give it well okay. Like, no, no, okay. It is a bit sketchy. But, but I, I think, think Xenia on a top's a bit more rapey than Bond is. Or Pussy Galore like, yeah. is worse than that. <laughs> I, well, I think Sean Connery, yeah. Sean Connery's more rapey with Pussy Galore than he is with then more is with Solitaire. So, I think if we've got an issue, bring up Connery with bit rapey. I with... think that was worse. Yeah, exactly. Um... Yeah, it looks. I like Solitaire. The fact that I think she's a very iconic character. She's gorgeous, and she obviously serves a key part to the plot. But she is a bit bland. Like she's, I don't yeah. know. There's just something about her that's just very like. Eh, it's Solitaire. I wish we had like, more backstory as well, like how she ended up yeah. in anger, kind of. We always talk about this backstory, and I think that's a good way of kind of really getting into why we like these Bond girls. And I think that, you know, as much as um, times change, the Bond films change in how they bring these Bond women out into the future. Like, partly in the 80s, more so I feel in the 90s, particularly, you know, Tomorrow Never Dies, um, you know, you really get these these Bond women who are pretty much a match for Bond almost. And we, they try and do that with some of these earlier films, but not quite as successful as they do later on. But it's like they completely forget they want to do anything like that in this movie. Like, you know, I mean, Rosie Carver, she's a Bond chick. She's the most useless one ever. And then we get bloody um, Solitaire, who, again, has a moment. So I agree with you. They've got great chemistry. But other than that, like, eh, Solitaire, good for her. Jane Seymour, Dr. Quinn. All that. <laughs> I slept with Dr. Quinn up into outer space. <laughs> Sorry, Colin. <laughs> Just back to Rosie Carver for a second. Oh, <laughs> trying oh. to bring it down. Um, I, I don't want to completely gloss over her death scene because I think the scene is played so well. And again, even when I was really hating on this movie for so long. I mean, I love the way this scene played. And again, it's another one of those moments where the music coming in just comes in at the perfect moment, just as he's raising that gun to her, you know? And I think this scene does explain a lot about her, you know, the fact that she she does believe, at least to a certain extent, this voodoo curse. And, you know, as we find out later on, it's all kind of a setup. And this is where I think the plot is a little bit more plausible than, uh, you know, what we saw in Diamonds Are Forever, because they at least take the time to show that it's not just the locals who are fooled by this. I mean, we talked about a little bit how Dr. No, the whole idea about the dragon. And it's like, well, everybody's fooled by the dragon. It's not just the locals. It's not just Quarrel. I mean, Honey Rider is fooled by the dragon. I mean, everybody's fooled by this dragon. And it's kind and of the same thing dragon. here. And there was, yeah. And that's Bond. the idea they're using here is basically what they Kill did Quarrel. in Dr. No. So I'm going to call Rosie Carver the first tragic character in uh, a Bond movie. This movie well, could be tragic subtitled. Tragic is one word. But... Yeah, tragic <laughs> sums are up, but not in the way you're saying. This is the uh, tragedy of Rosie Carver. This I, I have to say that uh, those scarecrow gun things are probably the campiest thing in this movie. Yeah, but yes. at the same time, I mean, it's... <laughs> it's, it's something that kind of adds to the whole feel of the location. You know, they're this is just a regular country and Kananga's using these things to play up on local fears and legends and stuff. And, you know, I kind of like the idea just as far as the setting of the location goes. Um, w- with the scene with um, 
Solitaire. I'll get into Solitaire in a second, but I know I mentioned this to off air before, but the image of Roger Moore wearing Solitaire's robe is just another one of those things that you can't discuss it and explain it to somebody and have it carry as much humor as just seeing him wearing it. Because, like, he could have just been sitting in her chair, but the fact that he decides to put the robe on, I mean, that's the perfect example of one thing that Roger Moore did even better than Sean Connery. And Sean Connery, we mentioned several times, he just had, like, this obnoxious child thing going on like he was always when he'd walk into a room like in thunderball it's like well now that everybody decided to join us you know and how he'd be playing with q's gadgets obnoxiously i mean roger moore does things like this where he's like he's not afraid to look like a bit of an idiot to get a laugh and because roger moore is so sophisticated i think he's able to pull something like that off it's just such a funny moment in the movie solitaire is she a bad bond girl I think that she fits the movie better than Tiffany Case because um, there's, oh. there's a purpose for her being there. The movie only works with her. You could take Tiffany Case out of Diamonds Are Forever and the movie still operates, uh, as terrible as it is. Um, it's just kind of strange to me. Like, I think even though I saw this movie very early on you know, in watching all the Bond movies, I mean, everybody knows who Jane Seymour is. You mentioned Ben, she's probably the most famous person, at least post-career, she had the biggest boost from a Bond movie. It's just so weird to see her not only in an early movie like this, but in a movie where her performance is kind of just amateur and terrible. And it's one of those performances where you would question, you know, if, if you didn't know it was Jane Seymour, you'd probably figure this actress probably never worked again because she's just so inexperienced in this movie. And there is a little bit of chemistry with Roger Moore, but I mean... I would compare this to every other more Bond girl and say that she probably still has less chemistry than everybody else who would follow after this. Um, the scene with the card trick, I mean, is that rapey or is that just kind of like, like it's, it's, it's like a guy giving a sleazy one liner to a girl trying to pick her up, or it's like a guy lying and saying that, you know, Oh yeah, I make like a hundred thousand dollars a year. I mean, it's, it's more of a pickup thing than anything else. And as we said, the fact is, she wasn't sleeping with Bond because he tricked her with a false deck of cards. He was doing that as a reminder of what she already drew the first time. And it was her belief in this superstition that did that. And it was her who drew the card the, the first time. It was her deck. So even when he admits it later on, she just kind of plays it off. He's like, well, you know, I kind of stacked the deck. And she's like, no, that's not that's not the issue here. I mean this is this is nothing more than roger moore just giving a little bit of a sleazy pickup i mean there'll be much worse things to come after this um we've kind of covered a lot of solitaire so i have to ask this while we're here does solitaire have any powers at all well i believe she's psychic and for some reason it's connected to virginity i mean they they bring it all up with yeah but is it all baloney or is there actually something in there no i think i think it's true the movie kind of states that it is true, I think. Whereas in the book, it was more... She kind of had a loose admission of, you know, this is something that you learn how to do, and it's a lot about... Like, she's a mentalist more than anything in the book, where she knows how to kind of play people with this. It's not saying she's a crook or she's faking it, but it's saying, like, it has more to do with being able to read people and putting on a little bit of a show. But here in this movie, I think they clearly stated as it's some type of real power. 
So do you guys like that there's that supernatural element in a Bond film, or do you think it should be pure? Like, we know he goes to space in a few films. Like, do you think? Do you like that there's a bit of magic in there, or should it just be pure <laughs> spy films? I think you summed it up perfectly when you said he goes to space in a couple of films. Like, I think, like, with that in mind, then this is fine. <laughs> it's kind of weird for me because as a viewer, I think this is one of the areas where the movie is a bit at fault because her having these powers, but then the rest of the plot being built around fooling people with the whole voodoo curse. I mean, Kananga is basically playing false voodoo God or whatever throughout this movie to all of his people. But yet he's completely believing in Solitaire's powers. Um, In the book again, Mr. Big, which is Kananga, he 100% believed Solitaire's powers and he was just as protective of her because he thought that she could do this. So it's weird because I think that her character and her power has a place with the villain and it makes him more menacing. But it also, with the stuff they added in this movie about him playing up on those curses and fooling people, it really doesn't make sense. So I don't know how much it adds. Um, We talked about Diamonds Are Forever, how the second half really kind of drops the ball and it's not as strong as the first half. I think... This is the opposite, and I think at this point is where it turns around, and the, the rest of the film I actually quite enjoy. It's this Sam Monique stuff, the early stuff that's kind of a bit boring, kind of a bit meh, but I think this here right now is the turning point, and everything is up from here, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, so next morning, the Bond and Solitaire escaping. We have a nice scene with uh, Baron Samity playing the flute in the graveyard. I really enjoyed that. Uh, and then we've got the helicopter and the Samini police ch- uh, chasing Bond on bikes, and uh, Bond gets in a bus, which is just an awesome scene. Uh, the top being taken off it is something I've always remembered from being a kid as one of my favourite moments. Um, just bus chase is something new adding to the films that we haven't seen before, and it's so great down San Monique with the bus and then leaving on a boat with Quarrel, um and heading to New Orleans, as uh, Roger Moore will say. Uh, so not a whole lot to add, but it is quite an extended sequence, 10 minutes or so, but I love the bus chaser. Um, yeah, it's a good scene. Um, he also discovers the drugs, of course, which we haven't really found out to this point what the fuck um, Kanag is doing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a fun scene. I mean, him in a fucking giant bus. Like, I swear that there's always elements in Bond films where they've always got to try and top the previous one. Like, okay, we've had this chase. We, you know, we had a moon buggy chase in the last scene. So what can we do? What can we do in this movie? I know, a double-decker bus scene. Um, but I love the fact that he always, whenever he crashes, like, you know, he, he runs under a low bridge and all it does is chop the top half of the bus off. That's <laughs> fine. Same with the plane. Just loses the wings. Like, if that was a villain, like, the whole thing would have crushed and they all would have died. Like, you know, oh, Bond would have been the best Dr. Luck. No with the car exploding every time it... It's <laughs> yeah. the three blind moments. Um, I find it really interesting. And again, uh, jumping ahead here to the Kiss Kiss Bang Bang count. But, I mean, up to this point, we've really only had one kill, mm-hmm. if I'm correct in saying that. Like... We haven't had a lot of deaths, really, at this moment. Yeah. Um, but it's, it is a fun scene, and, like, I, I love, you know, the fact that we... I think we spoke about 
a little bit, Colin, I think you brought it up, how really at this point in the Bond film, I mean, they're always doing these stunts and they're actually doing them. And you can tell that these are actually shots that they're doing. They're not, you know, Dr. No green screen um, car chases. These are actual um, things that have been filmed. And it, it's great. And this is where I think a lot of these films, even though they are accused of being campy, just the stunts and these scenes, and we'll talk about that no doubt very shortly with the boat chase, they really do stand out because they're fun to watch because you know they've actually done them when they've filmed this movie. Um, yeah, with uh, the escape scene here, this is, I'm going to slightly disagree with Noah, but agree with him in the basic idea that the second half of this movie does improve. Uh, I think the biggest issue I always have with this movie is more if you split this movie into three parts, you have the first act, which is really everything up until Bond and, you know, uh, gets to San Monique. Then you have the second act, which is San Monique. And I would include Bond's escape with solitaire in there. And then the third part, which is really new Orleans and on. I mean, I think, I never was able to figure out why this middle section of the movie the second act really didn't work for me. Cause I do think that it picks up a lot later on. Uh, and I've kind of figured it out this past time. I think the solitaire escape just is kind of rendered is meaningless when she just goes back with Kananga later on. Cause it's very short lived in the movie. So I almost would have rather bond just have to escape and maybe come back for solitaire or have Solitaire with him the entire time. But it probably would work better with her just not escaping. Because really from this point on, it's just a couple of random action scenes. And yeah, the bus scene is cool. Uh, it's great to see you know the, the stunts. And the one thing that Guy Hamilton really did is I think that he really did something great with the car chase and Goldfinger. And knowing that they did you know these great action scenes, especially on the, the Little Nelly and then Honor Majesty's Secret Service... Uh, with the bobsled and the skis, he didn't really try to just make a straight action scene. He would always add just an interesting vehicle in there to make it different. So instead of doing a really great chase, let's do kind of an average chase, but let's make it a double-decker bus. Let's do a really average chase and make it in a plane with an old lady. And uh, It's just those quirky ideas that hold this together, but the movie kind of stops and the plot stops at this point. And I think this whole section here with solitaire and bonds escape is really where I just completely check out of the movie every single time. Yeah, I'm the opposite. That's where I perk up because I, I can forgive cool action. If it's cool action, even if it doesn't have too much to do with the plot. Um, you mentioned the plane when he's in new Orleans. Um, that's really funny with the granny, Mrs. Bell and the first use of swearing in a bond film, uh, which was really funny from her um, when the wings break off. Uh, I think she was a great little character. I wish it was uh, pussy galore's flying circus. though. not, uh, <laughs> I can't even remember the name of what it was, but uh, I was just say, can we cap this off as, the end of Guy Hamilton's Grannies in Action Movies trilogy because we had <laughs> the Granny with the Machine Gun and Goldfinger, Granny Diamond Smuggler in, in Diamonds Are Forever, and now Granny in the Out of Control Airplane here. Like, he has a thing for the old ladies. Yeah. And we have old lady in the um, later on in the voodoo scene with Solitaire tied up too. Crazy old lady dancing in that bit as well. I don't know if you picked that up. I wrote that down. I think Guy uh, Hamilton really loved his grandma. Um... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or hated her. That's possible. Yeah. Either or. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that was a fun scene with the granny. I enjoyed that. And then we have Strata, the fillet of soul. Uh, and it's kind of harking back to the first pre-dial sequence with the funeral scene, which was cool to see again. 
um, and then Bond and Felix head to the club uh, to investigate, and this is taken from the book. In the book, it's Bond and Felix who go to the club at night time and investigate, and it's really one of my favourite few chapters in any James Bond book uh, with Bond and Felix and a lot of nice Felix moments, but they kept some of it here. Um, and then a cool little added touch of the woman singing the theme on stage. I'm not sure why they did that, but it's kind of cool. I like it. Um, the floor giving way and Bond disappearing. They've got different contraptions everywhere in this bar. Um, and then Mr. Big revealing that he's Kananga, which was a huge shock for all of us. None of us knew that. Oh, I never saw that happening at all. <laughs> Another great Moore line. Quite revealing. Um, I really like that line from Moore. Um, yeah, that was not a shock at all. I wish they did that better with the Mr. Big revealing who he really was. And then we learn the plan that he's giving away heroin to create addicts and put other... Uh, other businesses out of business with the heroin and then he'll be able to create a monopoly with it um, and he'll be the only heroin dealer in the nation, as he says. Um, so it's, it's kind of just Goldfinger's plot in a way. It's just uh, Goldfinger wanted to screw up the gold so he was the only gold dealer really and it's kind of the same thing here. It's a bit of a meh plot, but I like that it's a bit more grounded and it works with the film, I guess. Um, and then straight after that, uh, he takes uh, Bond's watch and one of the best more lines, butter hook. <laughs> it's just so <laughs> random, but I love it. butter hook. Um, Bond is knocked out by Tihi and they say, take him to the farm. And we have Kananga beating up Solitaire and Solitaire, hold, uh, Samity holding up the death card. So this is kind of the most important scene of the film where we find out, who Kananga is and what his plan is. Uh, just quickly back to the plane situation. I love the fact that all these planes are just so brittle and that a car touches them and they crash. Like, I'm not flying in any planes in New Orleans soon. Like, they just all crash. No wonder so many of them crash in Hurricane Katrina. Um, now, too, too soon? Jeez. <laughs> okay. Maybe that was too soon. Um, <laughs> wow. It's the 10th anniversary. Moving on. Uh, I love the fact that we get Bond getting his suit fitted like yeah and we didn't touch on that and i i really like why why is this woman singing the theme like this is kind of like a diamonds are uh, not diamonds are forever got was a goldfinger or from russia with love where they're on the radio it's from russia with love, love isn't it yeah like i like it this, i mean I, I i'm not yeah i don't say i don't like it it's just, it's just weird that within this film <laughs> they're hearing the theme to the film within the film like it's it's kind of weird. i've written down here here's mary singing um, <laughs> second let's hear a view to a kill again i live in the tiger not a view to a kill what am i talking about um i've written here better than mccartney no that's not true uh, i wish she was singing uh, mango tree oh yes underneath the mango tree <laughs> uh, but yes he falls down my biggest question is the, the whole funeral scene with Strada is Strada or Strather? What's his Strather. name? Strather. Strather. Does he die? Is is that meant to imply that he gets killed? Well, we never see that? him again, yeah. so I assume so. Because when Felix goes off to take the phone call, we don't really see much from that either. So I just assume that he gets killed in that scene. Yeah, but... I, I I figure that's what it is, and I kind of like that they leave it off air. Like it's it's you've already seen the jazz funeral the first time, so you're already expecting him to die and then not showing it. I think 
is, is a little bit of a cool twist. That poor widow again, losing another husband. Um, <laughs> and yet the whole scene uh, with Mr. Pig reveal, I've written here, clearly he didn't go to the Spectre face yeah. school. Um, Shame Spectre's <laughs> no longer around. I know, they would have um, really had a good mask there. But just this whole plot, like... In a, in a James Bond film, like, the whole point is, like, he stops some, you know, massive villain from doing something huge and, you know, destroying the world or whatever, that sort of stuff. And you're kind of like, yes, the world is safe until the next, you know, Blofeld comes up. With this f- film, he stops Kananga. He stops his plan, but he hasn't stopped the dealing of heroin. <laughs> so, like, if you think about it, at the end of the day, he stopped one drug dealer. You know, there's still a whole bunch of other drug dealers I, out I there. Think about it. Wouldn't it be better if they let Kananga do the plan? Because then there's no other drug dealers, and then they only have to capture <laughs> everybody out of business. And then, He's monopolised the drug industry. Yeah, then one gas cartridge into Kananga's mouth, and the whole thing's over. Like it's yeah, just bide your time. Heroin dealers. Are there we go. We've just completely uh, solved the point of this film that Bond fucks the. The reason why heroin is such a problem yeah, is because Bond killed Bond. Kananga. If he let it happen, there would only be one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, James Bond. Uh, and that's, I guess, just a lot of my problem with this movie is I think it drags out. And I just think the overall plot is just... I just don't like the idea that at the end of the day, he's just stopping a guy from dealing free heroin. And that, to me, is just like, oh, wow, that's all so... I'm so into this James Bond film because of this. Um, you know, we'll talk about License to Kill being a plot line from Miami Vice... I mean, this is probably the reason why Miami Vice existed. Oh, we're stopping drugs. That's a good idea for a TV show. Um, but I, the fact that we get this whole plot here and the whole uh, scene with Kananga and Solitaire and, you know, did you touch her? Did you touch her? And then the whole chopping off the finger and guessing what the, the serial number and then he does it deliberately just to prove if she's uh, lying or not. I like the way that all played out. I think that was a good scene. And this is kind of where I start to like Kananga as a character a little bit more towards the end of the film because I think this is where he gets a bit more evilly pricky rather than just, oh, I'm Kananga. And I'm, I actually wanted to talk a little bit about Kananga here because uh, I think the Mr. Big thing it does throw off the scene. Like I would feel the bond Kananga solitaire scene here without the Mr. Big revelation. I mean, this would be an easy hall of fame choice and it may still be, I don't know, but I, I love the scene. I think it's so important for Kananga's character uh, to have this scene. Really. We haven't had any bond villains that you can take seriously since maybe red grant i mean blofeld in on a majesty of service you could definitely take him seriously but because we had a little bit of a sillier blofeld in you'll only live twice it, it tarnished it a little bit from russia with love was really up until this point the only time a bond villain wasn't completely cartoony and it's funny that despite how silly this movie is kananga is a very serious villain once he gets out of the mr big mask because this scene is so sick and twisted. I mean, the, the finger thing and then how intense he is. And again, this is kind of straight out of the book about how his idea for Solitaire was that he completely bought into this power of hers and he was keeping her for himself. He's like, you know, I would have, you know, uh, had you myself, you know, when the time was right. Like, that's what he was waiting for. He's such a sick character. But at the same time, like, Yafet Koto plays him so intelligent. And I love that he finds it um, more appropriate throughout this movie to hold back. And he's kind of soft-spoken at times. He has his moments where he just 
has a huge outburst, but he's not over the top at all. I mean, he's very reserved and he holds back. And I just think that Kananga is like the smartest villain we've seen up until this point in the Bond movie. And that says a lot. I definitely don't dislike Kananga, but I just feel there's something lacking there. Like, he's a good actor and he's got some good moments, but overall, when you think of great Bond villains, I don't really think of him, but he's not bad. Um, so we'll move on from there, and we have uh, Taken to the Farm, as they mentioned, and it's the Crocodile Farm in Louisiana. Um, I like there's a bit of Tiki backstory here, that that's how he lost his arm. That was a nice touch that we learnt. We saw him with his arm, and then, like, an hour later, we learned how he lost the arm. Uh, there's a bit here with all, like, Bond being trapped um, and then jumping over the crocodile's famous scene and actually was done, a real stunt, which is amazing. Um, and the guy who did it was called Ross Kananga, um, who owned the crocodile farm, and that's where they got the name for Kananga from. Um, and then Bond leads the crocodiles to the cabin and escapes, all that uh, and then gets in a boat and goons follow. Maybe we should just quickly talk about the crocodiles before we get into this next bit because right. I really enjoyed this whole farm scene. Maybe drags on a tiny bit long, but I loved the bit with the watch and the boat um, and jumping over is an amazing stunt and everything here with great tee moments here as well. I disagree that it drags on. I think this is one scene that maybe doesn't drag on. I think Only by like a minute or two. Oh, I think it's great, and uh, this, I think, when it comes to Hall of Fame mentioning, I mean, this, this surely got to be in the Hall of Fame no matter what. I mean, this yeah. is such a iconic scene from this film, and, yeah, the fact that this was actually done, I mean, <laughs> like, you watch that scene, it's kind of like we're talking about the jetpack in Thunderball, like, oh, that was fake, but when you learn it was actually real, you're like, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. And same with this scene, like, you, you see it, and you're like, oh, there's no fucking way somebody did that, but they did it. They took, like, what, five takes for them to do it? Um, I mean, that's, I think, even more amazing. Yeah. Um, and I, I just think it's great. I mean, the the one downside to this, again, it just opens up the doors for Austin Powers parodies when, like, they leave him on an island and just leave. Oh, he'll be dead. That's all right. We don't need to prove that he's really dead. It's all good. Um, but, yeah, Teehee is fantastic. This whole scene is fantastic. Roger Moore's fantastic in this scene. And then it leads... I love the fact that he's, like making the crocodile go inside and then like the whole thing blows up like roger moore turns into a sadistic prick like mm-hmm. i'm gonna make these crocodiles eat everyone uh but then yeah it leads obviously into something that i know Noah, you want to talk about completely separately um but i i love this scene it's such a great scene yeah i mean they really built a lot of sequences in the bond movies by just visiting locations they wanted to go to and then they'd find something interesting and that's kind of what happened here but it still fits in the movie. I mean, especially since we're losing some of the stuff with the sharks from, you know, the novel. Uh, it was a good substitution here. And it's something completely unique. And it, like we said, it was a real location, a real farm. And, you know, the real guy, Ross Kananga, is the one that performs that stunt in the movie. It's not one of the stuntmen because they couldn't find somebody to do it. Uh, that stunt is so iconic. Uh, and I think too often people forget it of it as a stunt because it is just something that just happens in the movie. It's not like it's a vehicle flip or, uh, you know, a, a jump off of a mountain, you know, with a parachute. Uh, this was kind of the beginning of the outrageous stunts. And from this point on, at least throughout the entire Roger Moore era, you will get one crazy stunt in every single movie. And uh, this movie has two of them. So this is only the first of them. 
the funny thing is when this movie, uh, when I first saw this movie, it was right around the time that the DVDs came out. I didn't have a DVD player yet, but when they first released like the documentaries and everything, I remember them advertising was watching TV and they had this thing like the Bond movies, you know, are coming out with documentaries, you know, showing how they made all the movies. And this was like pre DVD or when most people had them. So you didn't really see a lot of documentaries of making movies. And I just remember them showing that, like, including this behind-the-scenes footage and just seeing the footage of that stunt made me go and rent the movie that night because I'm like, I have to see this. I mean, it is so amazing to watch it's this. It's probably and the best documentary those... on the day. It's, yeah, it's definitely one of them. And there's so much in this movie that you don't get to see in others. And I think... This stunt, as well as what we're going to see in the next one, really does show that this is where they take the Bond movies in a different direction, at least as far as the action goes. And it's something that's very important, because action movies, really, I mean, a lot of people don't realize because they like, well, the Bond movies have been around forever. But action movies, as we know it, really didn't even start until sometime in the early to mid-80s. I mean, it was kind of like the Rambo movies that brought the modern action, you know, nonstop action blow up in there. So this is sort of all there was for big action in the 70s. And uh, it completely holds up today. I mean, I would watch this stunt over and over again in slow motion, you know, if I had the time to every time I watched this movie. Uh, next coming up is my hands-down favorite part of the movie. Um, and it's just, it's so awesome, is the bow chase. Um a lot of people complain that this is too long, and I think it's perfect. I like that it's extended, and this really kicks off a trend in the 70s of that kind of mid-film uh, extended chase. Uh, we'll see a next film uh, up the Thailand River in a kind of shortened version, but and we saw it last one as well, I guess, with the moon buggy car chase, but that kind of extension uh, of the chase, um, there's... A lot of little moments here that I'll leave you two to cover, uh, like the wedding and all those moments and jumping over the highway. It's just amazing. It's just people say it's too long, but I watch this. It's like, oh, that was an awesome stunt. Oh, that was a cool. Oh, that's cool. There's an explosion. Like time after time, it's just amazing. Um, I want to go back and watch it now. It's hands down my favorite part of the movie, and I think it's a great way to kind of set up the ending of it to have this awesome ongoing stunt and probably the best boat chase in the history of the series um, and some of the best stunts were seen up until this point. Um, and, of course, we should mention the introduction of yet another new character, Sheriff J.W. Pepper, <laughs> the esteemed uh, J.W. Pepper, which is really an anomaly. It's just I don't even know how to explain the character. I have to say, and people probably hate me for this, I kind of enjoyed the character, but I absolutely see the criticisms with that people have it, and it is a ridiculous character. I will say I enjoy it in this one. I don't think he should have come back for the next one, and we'll talk about that next film. But in this film, I think he fits well to add some comedy to it. He's ridiculous. Um, but just to make that chase even more fun, uh, to add the cops in there as well, driving along the side of the road... Um, this was always one of my favourite moments when I was a kid, this car, this boat chase. And we have J.W. Pepper wanting to get his cousin, uh, my cousin Billy Bob. Uh, uh, no, what was it? His stepbrother, I think it was, or brother, brother-in-law. Brother-in-law, brother-in-law Billy yeah. Bob. Uh, yeah, and he kept saying it over and over, my brother-in-law Billy Bob is the best. 
uh, boat man in Louisiana. Like, really. well, where was where was his deputy, Larry? Larry, I think yeah. you got him, Larry. <laughs> uh, so, well, he was too busy trying to get Toby, Toby, yeah. Toby. I know a lot of people hate JW, and people probably think it takes away from the scene. I'm not a huge JW fan, but I think he does add to the scene. And of course, we have uh, Billy Bob's boat getting taken uh, by. Oh, I'm blanking now. Is it? It's not Adam. Can, who. Adam, he's henchman. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a very evil name. Yeah. Christopher, Aaron, Sam, Adam. There's so many moments, and I said you guys can cover it. But we have got like boats in pools, weddings across roads. We have got explosion in that big hangar, cops everywhere. It's hands down my favorite, and it's a really long part of the movie. But I guess there's not overly a lot to talk about it. One thing that I always like to think about in these Bond movies is that you have, like, these epic chases in, you know, fairly public areas, and you're always wondering what are, you know, everyday citizens thinking of this. So, like, I can see what they've tried to do with J.W. Pepper, but they've just cranked it up a little bit too much. Like, it's, again, I I, I see to bring up Austin Powers movies a lot, but one thing I think that they do really well, what Mike Myers did, um, particularly in the first two, is, like, the whole scenes when, you know, a henchman will die and they call up, like, his family and it's like, oh, no one ever thinks about the family of a henchman. <laughs> like, you, you, you've actually got to think about that sometimes because, like, what would really happen after, you know, Vargas dies? Does he have a loved one? Well, Probably not, not Vargas. Virgin. But, he does not make but, love, remember? That exactly. <laughs> so you, you do think, like, there's this epically long boat chase down the bayou in Louisiana. Like, what's the emergency services response going to be um look jw pepper is yeah i i don't know how to react to him because i see what they're trying to do but it's a little bit too much and there's absolutely no purpose for him to come back in the next movie like that is i love man with the golden gun i do not love the fact that they bring back jw pepper um but i Look, I love this scene. I have nothing against the boat chase. It's great. Again, the stunts are fantastic. You know, the fact that they're driving up on the land and then, you know, there's a wedding. And if I go back and watch the wedding scene, though, because when the bride starts crying, they cut away really quickly. The groom is about to crack up laughing. laughing. (laughs) Like, he starts to smile and then they quickly cut away. Like, that is just hilarious. I love, like, the rich white people sitting around their pool. Um, you know, in Louisiana, like, you know, and then a boat goes in there. Um, I love the whole Billy Bob bit, you know, like, I want to borrow your boat. Everyone wants to borrow my boat, boss! And then, <laughs> bang, <laughs> steals it. But I do, I am one of the ones I think it goes on for a little bit too long. Like, I think they could have cut it by a couple of minutes and it still would have had the same effect. I do love the way it ends and how he kind of traps him into the big boat and bye-bye, Adam. Ooh, you know, big, huge villain henchman <laughs> in the history of the Bond films. Still better than Vargas, though. Um, <laughs> and Hans. But, yeah, other than that, it's it's very iconic and it is a great scene. Just a little bit too long. I think you could cut it by a few minutes, too. I mean, however many minutes you can count, I'm sure it's equal to the screen time that J.W. Pepper has in this movie. So that's what (laughs) I think should be cut from this. The rest of the boat chase, I mean, this is... I I don't know if there's another better chase scene in a Bond movie, uh, at least from what we're going to see 
maybe up until the tank and Goldeneye. Um, maybe my opinions will change as we go through some of the other ones. But this sequence, I would have to mind it if it went on even a little bit longer, minus JW. Uh, I like that Guy Hamilton, for once, is doing a chase scene that's not just about goofy bits. I mean, I was saying I, I liked the, uh, the the first one that we saw but the the airplane just didn't work and here we basically have our third major chasing you know the bus to the airplane of this and instead of just using a goofy vehicle i mean he's playing it as a straight action scene i don't know if it was just second unit guys who were doing this but this is a really exciting sequence and yet it still has those fun moments in it like the boat that ends up in the pool is my favorite i just love that and just just gets right out and hops in another one um jw pepper Wow. Uh, it's interesting because I didn't really know of the hate of him when I first saw this movie. But I was so annoyed by him. And I think one thing that we should probably mention is, I mean, there was a reason they brought him back from Man with Golden Gun. It wasn't just a Guy Hamilton thing. Like, I want more old ladies and more JW. I mean, he was brought back because audience response to him was really positive, you know, for whatever reason. Maybe Mildred everybody loved just- him. Mildred was a big fan. All the the acid trippers from Diamonds Are Forever love this. It just doesn't hold up well now. And I think that I've kind of pinpointed why JW's so over the top in this movie. And I think it's kind of just the American stereotype they're doing in this. Like, there's a lot of American movies when they're portraying people from other countries. It's always stereotypes, you know. If this was an American movie, an American spy movie, and they had a British, it would be like everybody's like, you know, we all have bullet hats and tea and bad teeth, you know? But here it's like, <laughs> well, let's just have him with an over-the-top accent and, you know, spitting all the time. I mean, it's just kind of the southern hillbilly stereotype that they're playing up on here, which maybe that was funny at the time because it, when it wasn't as widely known, but it just doesn't work here. The main stunt that we really do have to talk about, uh, I want to get just individual opinions on this, is the boat jump they have, the one that crosses the highway. Because that was, it wasn't just a boat jump. I mean, that was a world record they set for a boat jump when they did that. And I think that that was done in a way, and I think a lot of these stunts during the 70s, it was kind of just a new way to promote the movie. Because if you look back on some of the documentaries, I mean, this was a big deal at the time. You know, it was probably one of those things that you would see in the news where, you know, they're like, well, they filmed the new James Bond movie today and they set a world record because the world records were still new at that point. And uh, they kind of did this, you know, and again, the man with golden gun, spy who loved me. I mean, there was always some crazy stunt, but they would always go for something that had never been done before. And uh, I think a lot of it was for publicity reasons, but I mean, to see that boat jump even today, I mean, I think it completely holds up despite the fact that, we see much crazier things today. Yeah, it's hands down my favourite bit of the um, chase, and this just makes me want there to be a live and let die video game. <laughs> I'm not mm-hmm. ever much of a video gamer, but playing through this boat chase would just be amazing. Um, yeah, do you have any opinions on that specific one, bit? Nothing to add that hasn't already been said. I, I wasn't aware that it was a world record at the time, so I'd be intrigued to see what broke that world record, actually. Uh, maybe we can do our research and get back on that next time. Uh... <laughs> we'll do a whole podcast on the world records that have been yeah. broken from Bond movies. Uh, so after that amazing boat chase, uh, kind of the precursor to the 
um, climax of the film, Bond meets up with Felix, and they're heading back to San Monique. Weren't we just there? Um, Bond, Bond and Quarrel Jr. are sneaking in at night. Uh, Solitaire is tied to the stake. Um, we'll talk about this scene as a whole, but I just have a question. Bond shoots a fake Baron Samity. I've always been confused with this scene. Yeah, is it more so for the audience to think that, like, oh, he's killed him? Yeah, I guess um, so, but what is it? it it's an eyes it's, move. Yeah, well, I think it's both for the audience, but it's also going along with what Kananga set up all over the island, which is just these kind of special effects and tricks that, that are meant to just keep people in fear of this voodoo curse, that there are these, you know, animatronic Baron Samdies there just to confuse <laughs> That would it be is my kind theory. of funny, the eyes moving around when the head gets shot off, but I've always been yeah. confused by that. Um, and then Bond rescues Solitaire, and they go down the grave into the villain's hideout. Um, finally, we get to see it. Um, and meets with Kananga. We have um, <laughs> Whisper getting inflated on a couch. <laughs> uh, oh. uh, <laughs> Then we have Bond and Domino tied to the wench with the sharks. Of course, every good villain needs a shark pool. Um, with freaking laser beams attached. Uh, I wish it was crocodiles, but anyway. Um, uh, the watch saw cuts through the rope. Bond and Kananga face off. And then we have the, the Kananga balloon. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I just... I just that scene. Um... Yeah, in the lead up to everything you sort of mentioned, we we get introduced to the shark gun. Of course, there's such a thing as a shark gun. Um, the the whole like the whole scene when he kills fake Samity, it's like it's a if you don't straight away realize it's a fake one, it's pretty gruesome, I guess, for the time. Like his head's been mm-hmm. shattered, and then the whole body's getting shattered. Like holy shit, this just turned into like some really graphic scene, but then you realize it's fake. Um, we we get obviously a couple of kills here, and we get um, Quarrel blowing up the poppies, um, which I don't know how poppies work, but like if you burn dope, like everyone's just going to get high. Is that the same with poppies? Like is there just like you know smoke heroin in the air? Like that would well, be. I mean, it's not processed yet. <laughs> well, I don't know about drugs. I don't know how it works, but anyway. Um, and, yeah, you all, we think Samity's dead. He's in a box of snakes. Dun, dun, dun. Um, I love the bit when they break into the building and you've got the guards in that glass thing and they're like, Trouble! <laughs> like, all those red shirts. <laughs> yes, they're always going to be wearing the same colour, don't they? So you know they're evil. Um, I love the fact that before Whisper gets blown up on the couch, he has that laugh and he's like, <laughs> and then like, <laughs> I can't even do his laugh. And then Kananga shoots. This is I love Kananga in this scene, like evil Kananga, like sadistic Kananga. I think he it's holds kind his of like one. Donald Pleasant shooting Mister Asata. Yes, it's yeah, it's great. Uh, we get obviously this whole um, situation with the um, Kananga turning into self harm and cutting Bond. <laughs> um, shouldn't joke about that. And then <laughs> the, whole, the thing I don't get about this whole situation with the magnetic watch is he sees the pellet thing on the table. He turns it on. Why doesn't everything else that's metal... Like, yeah. <laughs> how does he single out one item? Like Maybe I, you I have to aim. Well, I forgot to bring that up earlier when he gets the spoon of M. Like, why doesn't everything metallic just go... Vroom, boom? 
and like do that. Like he's on a big giant metal thing. Shouldn't that also somehow connect to Bond? And also like he blows up Kananga, which I want to talk about separately. How does he activate it? Like he's got it in his mouth. So how come it doesn't go off in Bond's when mouth? He but pushes it... him down under the water or something. Right, I, I, I never get that. But, like, it's such a hilarious <laughs> scene. Like, he blows up like a balloon. It looks like, so bad. <laughs> it really looks terrible. And is, where is are it? his blood and guts there? Like, That's he, I'm exactly! Like... Shouldn't there be, like, a liver going somewhere and a, and a heart going somewhere? I, I don't know, but is it... Is it a view to a kill or um, license to kill where he's got in the pressurized tank and his head explodes at the window? Is that license to kill? Um, I, I can't we... remember the scene you're talking about. They're on a boat and the henchmen like kill one of their own people. They put him in like a hyperbaric chamber and his head blows up at the window. I think it's license to kill. I'm sure, this but... isn't the Austin Powers thing. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's definitely, it's definitely in Bond. Um, but. Yeah, this is <laughs> this is a much better scene than that one because in that scene we only see a head exploding and blood on the window. This time we actually get to see a man literally get inflated. It reminds me of um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Was it the blue <laughs> the blue girl? Salt. Yeah, she gets blown. I just wanted a bunch of Oompa Loompas to push her down, push Kananga down, and roll him down. The <laughs> well, that's what a, a Bond villain needs: Oompa Loompa. Well, we need to bring Raul Dahl back. Apparently, um, Kananga is Veruca but- Salt. And of course, we get the one-liner, you know, when uh, when Solitaire comes over and says, "What happened? He always did have an inflated opinion of himself." Like classic, of course. Uh, uh, this really should be discussed in two parts because I think this climax has the first half, which is so good, and the second half, which is so bad that they almost belong in two separate movies. Uh, I do have to give Guy Hamilton credit. I don't give Guy Hamilton credit for much for his '70s movies, but. This first sacrifice scene with Bond and the Baron Samby and everything. I mean, this is so phenomenal to watch. And I, I never really paid that much attention to it because I always knew that the goofy bits were coming after this with the, the, the couch swallowing whisper and the, the balloon Kananga. But this whole sequence plays so well with the, the, the drums playing in the background and the dancing and Again, the sacrifice, which we already saw earlier, we know the snakes are coming, and then you have everything just go, like, dead, when everything goes dead silent, when Baron Sandy comes up, like, it's a really eerie moment, and Guy Hamilton doesn't really do serious well, and I think that he pulled this one off brilliantly. Um, the whole Baron Sandy thing with the eyes rolling back in the head, again, we already discussed, you know, the reason for that, which I think, again, it's still just how he plays up on these curses and everything, but then as soon as they get underground, like it becomes a completely different movie. And I wonder what they were thinking. Like, why don't, why not reverse this? Why not have it end with the sacrifice scene? Just, I, I really wish I understood the logic behind this. And maybe it was like a last minute rewrite where like, we don't know what to do with the ending, but we have this really crazy idea about a guy blowing up like a balloon. <laughs> the entire second half of this is so ridiculous. I mean, you can enjoy it every time you watch it, but you enjoy it like you would enjoy a parody, like an Austin Powers movie. I mean, this couch swallowing whisper and and why is his blood and guts not going everywhere? That always bothered me. Like he just becomes a balloon and the things inside of him that shouldn't be inflating inflate. Like I understand maybe, maybe his skin and his body inflating, but why do his eyeballs inflate too? Like (laughs) he didn't swallow something inside of his eye socket. I mean, nothing about it makes sense. And 
maybe they just wanted to end the movie on a goofy note. I don't know. But I mean, I, I do have to say I love the first half of its climax. I think it's just fantastic. We, we needed um, Lazenby to overdub it going, he <laughs> had, had lots not of, a lot of guts. He had lots of guts. <laughs> <laughs> and can I just quickly add to, again, going back to the point where I said that this guy is a prime minister of a country, does Bond just like turn into an assassin? Like, is that an assassination of a world leader? Like, does Bond need to be investigated there? <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, Whisper's the only one that really isn't dead unless, you know, swallowed by a couch or falling into a box is like a canoe and kills him. But he's still out there. So why isn't Whisper going around saying, you know, this guy just killed our prime minister? Like, there's still well, people out there. Because he's a prime minister. Whisper became the prime minister. Yeah, the kill count <laughs> is going to get... Uh... My fellow Sandman Eakins. <laughs> I think Whisper dies. How do you... Oh, let's not go... No, no. I don't think he does. He falls Hell. into, like, a chamber, and the doors close on him. I mean, he doesn't even take a bump. Yeah, but th- there's no way he's ever getting out of that. Well, there there's could no be, way like, he's getting a... out of there. Like, he's, he's probably has, like, a knob on the inside, and he opens it up. All right, Whisper's not dead then, but I think he does. <laughs> I love the fact, too, that he goes, look out. Yeah. <laughs> what? Well, I think he don't, because he's sitting in there, and then... People coming to clean up everything, and he keeps going, Help me, get me out. <laughs> and no one ever hears him, so he's there for the end of time, Help, get me out. But there'll be somebody who turns around and goes, Well, this door isn't meant to be closed. <laughs> um, I think this climax is worse than Diamonds Are Forever. I really like the rock pool set, and that's kind of partly taken from the book. But I wish with the, all the the first Baron Samity moment, I wish I like the Thunderballs, the. Um, you only live twice, Majesties, where it's a big fight at the end. Yeah. Even Golden, Goldfinger. Um, and I've, they could have fed this in, like the Sam Monique red shirt guys versus Bond and some other allies on Sam Monique would have been cool. And well, with all this. You, like, like, you guys kind of briefly talked about it, but do both of you think that if they had ended the movie with the, the sacrifice scene, maybe just tack something on there, that this would have played as a better climax? Uh, what do you mean? Like the first half of the climax, everything with like the the Baron Samdi and oh. you know, the, the sacrificing solitaire, and if you just put the, maybe add the the scene with Bond and Kanang on to the end of that, and maybe ditch the whole balloon thing, but have it all take place like in that one location right after the maybe. The, but I do like the rock pool set though. I think it looks cool. It's just they don't do enough down there. Um, there needs to be more fighting. Yeah, I think it's just a lackluster one. The sets are good, and the balloon is horrible, and the couch is just why. Um, so, <laughs> I don't know if in the end it will be my least favourite one, but up until this point, it's probably my least favourite. There are some positives, but there's a lot of just lair about it, I think. Uh, so, that's the end of the film, or is it? Um, in classic Bond tropes, uh, mainly Hamilton films, but some other ones too. Uh, Bond and Solitaire are leaving, they're on a train. But one of the henchmen isn't dead, and it's not Whisper. Um, Teehee breaks out of the sacks on the train, uh, and he comes to have a face-off against Bond, where <laughs> Solitaire gets locked into the bed compartment. Um, it's not the best fight, it's definitely not the best train fight, but I think it's a fun little end of the film, and we get to see Teehee once again. Well, that's the the selling point. You get to see Teehee once again. 
Um, I do love the fact that they're having these big punch up. They destroy like one side of the train window. Yet in the final scene, when he gets solitaire out, that's fine. Like you know how loud that was when they smash it, and there's the trains going, <laughs> and yet right at the end, it's fine. Whatever, we'll just have sex no matter what. Solitaire. Um, I love the bit when he's cutting the wires off, and the look onto his face. He's like, oh shit. Um, and then he gets kicked out of the, the train. Unlike uh, another henchman in a movie or two, he obviously doesn't survive. Or does he? Uh, no, he doesn't. Um, <laughs> I do love uh, Solitaire. Well, that wasn't very fun. Uh, <laughs> which gets out. And, of course, Felix's line, what are you going to do on a train for 16 hours? Say goodbye to Felix, sweetheart. <laughs> um, and then, of course, you end with uh, Baron on the train, you know, just chilling why wouldn't he be on the front of a train like this you know (laughs) as you do and i love i love how it ends though how they zoom up onto his face with the laugh and and then then into the theme theme again into the oh yeah i was gonna bring up uh samity on the train but you already mentioned it so is he supposed to be immortal or did they just want to bring him back for a film or what i never got this bring him back instead of jw pepper (laughs) Baron Samity on holiday in Thailand. <laughs> I, th- I think it's a great end. I love that he's on the front of the train, but are they supposed to imply he's like an immortal character or did they just want him back or what? I never understood it, but it's cool though. Well, I mean, Baron Samity is a real legend, like outside of the Bond novels. Ian Fleming kind of took this real legend and wrote about it. So uh, I don't know that much about him, but I think that's supposed to be, you know, what he is, that he's this immortal or he can live forever. Yeah. Uh, so, what did you think of the T he fight? Come. Um, the fight is pretty lackluster. Uh, it, it's it's made up for because T he's an interesting villain and it's got the arm in there. Uh, overall, I mean, I, I think this. I like when they have these last minute fights come up, but I mean, the way that Guy Hamilton handles them, they're not really exciting. You know, with Rosa Klebb, it was an exciting thing, and obviously with uh, the um, Blofeld and Bunt coming back. I mean, that was something completely different. But I think of the three that Guy Hamilton does, the only one that really works is the one that we'll talk about in The Man with the Golden Gun next time. Uh, other than that, I mean, the train scene, it's kind of fun to have him on train again. Uh, I do like the, the line where they're talking about, you know, um, what we're going to do on a train. It's like, well, we could think of something. And then it just shows them playing cards. Like, <laughs> is that what Bond was... <laughs> alluding to earlier uh, i had a couple of questions about this like a there's a lot of moments in this movie you wonder where is bond's gun like he's supposed to sleep with that under his pillow why doesn't he have a gun that he could just pull out and shoot t in the face with right here i mean the only tools he has is that for whatever reason you know he he has his bolt cutters in with his comb and his shaving kit like <laughs> he carries this with him wherever he goes just for grooming or something like didn't really make a lot of sense. Um, I would have rather they ended the movie on the ridiculous the balloon than include this last one. But it does have the fun little moment of Baron Samby showing up at the end. So uh, it's not a complete loss, but not the best way to end the movie. And this is, again, one of those reasons why I think my opinion was so down on Live and Let and Die for so long. Because despite a lot of great stuff that's in the movie, it ends off on these two really ridiculous scenes. But we do get CTE, um, and I think yeah. I think we'll say in our seventies retrospective that the seventies really is the birth of like the crazy henchmen that have some sort of 
thing wrong with them, like um, or some sort of quirk. Um, like yeah. obviously we had odd job, but for the most part, the sixties was like Red Grant, um, Bunt, Vargas, Vargas. <laughs> but then now we've got Hans. now we've got Tee and we have Wind and Kid, and we have uh, Whisper and Baron Samity, Nick Nack, Jaws. So it's really the birth of those kind of characters, which I love. Um, but that's it. James Bond will return in The Man with the Golden Gun. Uh, that's the end of Live and Let Die. Um, so uh, let's give some concluding thoughts on the film before we get into our other ending things. Um, I'd say talking about it has made me like it a bit more. I've always been a fan of it, but it's gone down a lot in this rewatch. But at the end of the day, it's still a solid opener for more. I think it's fun. It's one I can easily go back to and enjoy all the time. Uh, there's a lot of good about it, but there is definitely some negatives. Um, and at this point, I still don't know where I'll be putting it in my rankings. So it, it, it's a fun one, but in the grand scheme of things, I'm not going to have it as high as a lot of people do. It's just there's something a bit off about it, but it's enjoyable. Well, I've watched it twice in the last week. It's been about two and a bit hours talking about it now, and it hasn't really changed my opinion of it. Um, yeah, I think I summed it up really at the start. And, you know, I think... The only real positives, um, Teehee, um, <laughs> Roger Moore's first outing is Bond, which I think is good. David Hedison. Um, <laughs> yes, David Hedison, of course. Um, honky references. Um, yeah, look, I'm just not a fan of this film, to be honest. One thing I'm just actually quickly reading here on a sort of a weird segue in the James Bond Encyclopedia, written by John Cork and Colin Stutz, which I've mentioned at all this episode, um, which I didn't actually know until I just read this bit here, that the production was um, filmed in parts of Jamaica, some where Dr. No had been filmed a decade earlier, and that they also filmed at a set of banana boat docks adjacent to the late Ian Fleming's estate, Goldeneye, where the author wrote Live and Let Die. So, cool. I had no idea about that, so I just found that interesting. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny because I don't think that my opinion of this is really any different from either of yours, other than the fact that I'm probably a little bit higher on some of the characters, uh, maybe a little bit lower on some of the action scenes. But it's just, again, so interesting that, that when we started talking about doing these Bond podcasts, I know you especially were like, oh, I love Live and Let Die, I love Live and Let Die, and your opinions kind of decreased. And before we started doing this, I was like, I hate Live and Let Die, I hate Live and Let Die, and now all of a sudden I'm like, I'm finding myself kind of a bit of a fan <laughs> of the movie. Uh, not that big of a fan still, because I still don't consider it a great movie. There's a lot of problems with it. But it's a lot more fun than I ever thought that I would have watching this movie. And um, I especially love Kananga. I think that he gets better with every view for me. Uh, Solitaire definitely decreases with every view. Rosie Carver, long live uh, Rosie Carver. I forgot to talk about one other Rosie Carver moment, which again is so uh, Let's go back to this for a second. Really? When she's giving the false directions and then she says, you know, uh, uh, down there or something like that. I thought you said it was up the hill. She goes, right, up the hill, down there. Like, two exact opposite directions you gave them and you say it with complete confidence. Like, everything Rosie Carver does is great. Uh, the movie's a lot of said fun. Said no one ever. <laughs> said me, okay? And I matter. I'm a person, too. <laughs> Rosie Carver over J.W. Pepper. I need to get that opinion. Somebody, uh, somebody... J.W. No! J.W. <laughs> sick. <laughs> you no uh, good, honky. Come on. 
Have you done all your Rosie Carver references then? Can we move We've on? only talked about like three of them. There's no more. I think I've gotten every Rosie Carver reference out. Now I'm going to have plenty of Merry Goodnight ones in the next one. Cause I can't I love wait her to character. see Rosie come back. I love Merry Goodnight. Do you uh, say Rosie Carver Oz? Yeah. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> all right, let's get into it. Uh, play the sound clip, the horrible sound clip. Rankings, baby. Rankings. Um. <laughs> oh, we're doing rankings first, are we? Uh, do you want to do something else first? Oh, we, we've played the theme now. We usually do Kiss Kiss Bang Bang first. <laughs> I thought we'd do so. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang last because we always get it wrong. Well, I, I was going to do box office and ranking. Well, whatever. We'll, we'll play the intro so we'll rank it. <laughs> rankings. <laughs> All right, Rankings. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I'm going to let you guys go first because I'm tossing up between two spots, but I honestly have no idea where I'm going to put it at this point. Well, you put Diamonds Are Forever at number one. Uh- <laughs> that's subjective. <laughs> Look, I'm looking at my top seven, which is funny because that's the only amount of films we've done. Um, it's not making it into the top four. No way. So, <laughs> Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Goldfinger from Russia with Love and Diamonds Are Forever are safe. <laughs> Um, I got a lot of shit for putting You Only Live Twice ahead of Dr. No. Um, but You Only Live Twice is staying at fifth. Dr. No, look, not a big fan, staying at sixth. So that leaves me with Thunderball at the end or Live and Let Die. And for as much as I think Thunderball drags on, there is elements of Thunderball which I would put ahead of Live and Let Die. So for that reason, Live and Let Die gets number eight out of eight for me. I'm putting it at the bottom. Finally, a little bit of Thunderball love, even if it was backhanded. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For me, uh, it's pretty easy for me to rank this, but I think the surprise on my part was that out of my bottom three up until this point, this is not the bottom, because I think I always would have considered it at the bottom before. Um, This has come anywhere near my top ones, Honor Majesty, Secret Service, From Russia With Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, and Dr. No. I think those 60s movies minus You Only Live Twice is so hard to beat. But I would rank this higher than both You Only Live Twice and Diamonds Are Forever. Um, And I'm going to be more interested to see what's going to happen once we get to Man with Golden Gun next week because I always sort of saw a lot of these movies, a lot of these Roger Moore ones, the early Roger Moores and the later Roger Moores kind of on an even level. But we'll see how it shapes up next week but yeah i'll put this uh what would that be six out of eight six yeah if i'm yep six uh for me like you guys it's not touching my top ones diamonds are forever majesties russia would love goldfinger doctor no so my dilemma is does it go above you only live twice at sixth or does it go below it at seventh just above thunderball um I like You Only Live Twice, but there's a lot of problems with it. Um, I'm probably going to put it in... Let's put it in... Sixth place above You Only Live Twice, which makes the Diamonds Are Forever, Majesties from Russia with Love, Goldfinger, Doctor No, Live and Let Die, You Only Live Twice, Thunderball. All right. There you go. Done. Yeah, that was a hard one. Um, That's what she said. Rankings! Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah. Wow. We get a, That's what she said, followed by rankings! <laughs> P- 
Perfect segue. I think people are tuning out in this episode now that they've heard our brand new spanking intro for it. Um, <laughs> all right, let's move on then. What do you want to do next then? Shall we do Hall of Fame? Hall of Fame. It's the hall, the hall with the classic scenes. Um... Sure, all right. I don't know if we have a theme, so I had a little pause. Um, we we do. We just heard it. <laughs> okay, don't. Like, we have a lot of problems coming to like a consistent opinion on this show. <laughs> I love how no, I love how Colin just yelled at us for some reason. <laughs> well, because I was saying like, the don't. Oh, we already heard Hall of Fame. We could do yeah. whatever. I didn't know there was a specific order. I thought we just picked out the three whatever one. Uh, it's generally been Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, then it's generally been Hall of Fame, then it's generally been Rankings. Well, We're doing it the opening. bring that this up way. at the next pre production meeting, or right? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. This never good. happened to the other episode. <laughs> are usually me and Noah saying, like, do you think Ben slept in again? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, so what uh, are we doing? Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. It's the hall, right, the hall with the classic scenes. I think there's two, <laughs> that, there's two in this one that we are probably completely in agreement on. I'm guessing we've already, I think all of us mentioned the boat chase and the crocodile yep. escape. Yeah, yep. I'm putting them both up. Boat chase has um, to be in there. Yep, down with both. Crocodile is such a great moment. Um, there was one I was thinking of um, coming into this. Um, We've got a few, but they're not that great. Yeah, I'm just trying to, like, I because when I was coming, I'm thinking, like, well, there's two obvious ones, and then there was a third one, which I was like, well, that's fairly iconic as well, but I've gone blank well, on Well, the one movie. I'm thinking of is Hang Glider Death. But that's such a short, sharp moment. Like, it's really known, but it's not that great. I feel something to do with Samity needs to be in there. No, I actually would say... I mean, my personal favourites would be, like I said, the sacrifice scene at the end with Baron Samby's death or not death would be a really good one. Um, other than that, uh, I think Bond's introduction, because that scene plays it's so much humour with yeah, the Italian Yeah, magnetising. Yeah. Yeah. You always see that shot of him with the watch uh, unzipping the zip. And again, just like like I said, I think it's the perfect introduction to Roger Moore. And that's something that, you know, Lazenby didn't really have the privilege of was a movie tailored towards him. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good one. Moore's introduction. Yeah, we'll put that one. Yep. (laughs) With a lot of enthusiasm. (laughs) No, no. If you want. <laughs> well, maybe. Let's we don't have Colin yelling at me. <laughs> Ben's still waking up here. He no! <laughs> no! <laughs> Do as you're told! <laughs> All right, so shall we play the one that you want us to play now, Colin? Yes. All right, let's hear that. Mr. Kiss, Kiss, I know, don't we all? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, this episode really took a nosedive. <laughs> you know why it's taken a nosedive? Because we have not mentioned at all or played this bit. We haven't had any Die the Day references, people. Come on. Oh, we referenced it. We did. We talked like, for three it, like, seconds. Three times. That's the least amount that we've talked about. That's why we're going so short this episode. God, you people. Alright. Anyway. This is the controversial one. Maybe we've got it this time. Who knows? Uh, so let's... Well, considering you think Whisper died, no. <laughs> well, I've, t- I've changed my list. So, Bond James Bond's one. Yeah. Z- Zero Martinis. 
Yep. It really uh, well, hasn't happened. It's, it's a little bit arguable because we see him drinking something out of a martini glass at one point. Mm-hmm. But because it's not specifically said, I mean, I could let that one go. I think we needed to do the um, the Bollinger count more so than the fucking martinis. He drinks that far often than he drinks martinis. Yeah. Uh, kiss- Start again. Start again for the Bollinger count. Uh, yeah, kiss, <laughs> kiss count three. Yeah. Well, I had two, but I didn't count Carver, so I'll I'll happily. Uh, Solitaire Carver and Miss Caruso was that in there? Yeah. Yeah. And the controversial one, the kill count. Um, I'm confident. I am so confident. I'm with pretty this one. confident too. Once I've taken Whisper off the list, so I, and I've written them down as well. So I'm gonna say. Please, can we have a match for the first time ever? <laughs> I'm going to say kill count six. Yes. Yes. Oh, me too. Oh, me too. <laughs> I'm not even joking. All right. Can I, I'll say mine then because you probably think I'm joking. Oh, I'm not. Okay. Them. All right. So uh, I've got guy on cliff. Yep. yep. So getting like kicked off the cliff, right? I'm just looking through my notes here. So that's one. Uh, then we didn't really have any till uh, we've got uh, Adam in the boat. Yeah. Blown up in the hull. Uh, then we have the two guys at the uh, sacrifice. So we have, I've yep. written here Black Snake Man and snake Sword Guy. guy. And snake Guy and Double Shot Guy, I've written. That's, yep. that's and a much then better I've... description than Guy in Grass from last <laughs> 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 Then Kananga yep. and then Teehee. Yep. Yep. Six! Yeah. Yay! <laughs> Finally! If anybody wants to know why this episode is 45 minutes shorter than our other ones, it's because we agree <laughs> on a kill count. <laughs> And, well, Noah, you had Whisper down, but... Well, I we'll changed it. Um, <laughs> I think we've kind of established now that Guy Hamilton, he's not big on the old uh, Bond killing people. Because if you look at it, we've got six for this one. Last one we had eight. Um, then what was his other one? Goldfinger, eight as well. So, And this is the lowest one so far. Only six for Roger Moore's introduction. So, well, we have, okay, so total then... Uh, 97 kills, so that should mean Man with Golden Gun we get his sentry brought up. Um, so we've had 97 kills, 23 kiss kisses, still on the five martinis, and six Bond James Bond. Yeah, finally, we got it right. <laughs> High five, everybody. There's a High reason why last then. Um, knew that was the reason. Uh, so, Ben, do you want to give us box office statistics? Sure. And Peter so... Travers is r- ridiculous. Can we have a theme for this one? <laughs> Peter Travers um... <laughs> <laughs> There we go. Is that, is that literally the no, theme? Is that not. what we just said? <laughs> oh, Colin, you're going to make something out of that. No. Now. <laughs> We're either going to say it before or after you give us the listing, so just go ahead. He, d- he doesn't listen. I think uh, too many no, uh, sound clips for the editor, no, George. Nobody, nobody listens. Nobody listens. Uh, all right. Originally, Live and Let Die made only $35,377,836. Is that gold software? Which puts it uh, just below You Only Live Twice. And above license to kill, it made uh, comparing to Diamonds Are Forever, it made eight million dollars less than Diamonds Are Forever, which I believe was Sean Connery's salary. So that was a bad joke. Um, and <laughs> wah, 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 wah. Uh, and but if you inf- if you adjust it for if inflation, is that a pun? Um, 
No. Uh, <laughs> 16th position, $162,298,300 below the spy who loved me and ahead of for your eyes only, but ahead of Dr. No as well. Uh, Peter Travers uh, ranked it at 11th, uh, just ahead of... Higher than him. Uh, above for your eyes only, and rightfully so, just below Die Another Day. <laughs> You know, you almost were making sense until you mentioned that last part there. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's that bit. Is that all your statistics? Yes. There we go. I'm feeling good. We've got a, a match on the the kill count. It's probably going to be the only one. Um, well, we've got about 35 more minutes to fill here, guys. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> Rosie uh, Carver. No! Another great moment. <laughs> Let's... Um, Tease up the next one, the the man with the golden gun. We kind of already did our live and let die summary. Um, I will say I've already watched it, or half of it anyway, for the episode that we're recording. Um, And it's one that I've always kind of put as, yeah, man with the golden gun, it's whatever, it's okay. And then every time I always forget how much fun I have when I watch it. Uh, It's not a perfect one. There's definitely some things that are not great about it, but... Overall, I think it's a fun follow-up to this one, and I'm excited to talk about it. I think it's got a great villain and henchman and a lot of fun moments, so it should be good. I fucking love The Man with the Golden Gun. Um, I've watched it, but I haven't watched it with note-taking, so I have to watch it again. Uh, oh, what a shame. But it's it's got one of the greatest villains. I love Scaramanga. He's such a good villain. Yeah. Christopher Lee, such a great actor. Um, it's got fucking knickknack in it. Like knickknack is just the best. Um, it's got Mary Goodnight in it. Uh, <laughs> wow! Like, and we get the return of Q. We we forgot that Q wasn't in this movie. We can talk about that for thirty five minutes. Um, but I I know I just love the Man with the Golden Gun. I'm pr- I'm clearly the only person on this podcast who likes the song for Man with the Golden Gun. <laughs> no, I like it. Uh, it used oh, good. To be my favorite when point. I was younger. Thank you, Colin. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I just love it. It's great, and I mean, it always reminds me of. We're talking about Goldeneye the game before, of course. When you put on Golden Gun mode, and you just had like the one shot kills. Like it's just, oh, such a good movie. I can't wait to talk about it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, Man with the Golden Gun is one that I never understood the hate for, but at the same time, kind of like where my opinion is on Live and Let Die right now, I don't consider it to be a great movie. But there's some things about it that are so good that it. So much about it is forgivable. I mean, Christopher Lee is one of the all-time great villains in this, and Nick Knack is one of the all-time great henchmen. And I'm not going to say Mary Goodnight is one of the greatest Bond girls, but as far as most entertaining Bond girls, like I think that sometimes people need to get over whether a character is, you know, uh, bringing anything to the table as far as like the action goes or the 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 plot, and just enjoy a funny character for a funny character. I mean. There's no the, the fact that people are like, well, she's a dumb Bond girl. Well, she's a funny Bond girl. No, she's not necessarily dumb. She's just hilarious. And uh, I was just watching it with my wife, and my wife was rolling her eyes at Mary Goodnight. And I'm like, come on, this is funny stuff. So, uh, did you write down any quotes that she said? Uh, oh, there's tons of Mary Goodnight quotes. So uh, I'll have tons of those. <laughs> no, quotes. I meant your wife quotes. Oh no, Jamie quotes. No, she didn't hate this as much <laughs> as she hated Diamonds Are Forever. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, I'm gonna have fun watching the rest of this again i only got like noah halfway through while i was waiting for ben to wake up and uh i'm enjoying uh what i've seen so far and i always do rewatch this movie and kind of have a bipolar reaction where 
there's parts where I'm like, wow, this is really boring. And then other parts where I'm like, this is wildly entertaining. So there's going to be something good to talk about, but then there's also going to be some bad parts. That's in then. Live and Let Die is done. Roger Moore's first adventure as James Bond. Um, make sure you subscribe to our... Uh, do we have an iTunes? I'm not sure. Yes. Subscribe to our iTunes. Clearly no one's not subscribed. <laughs> I don't use iTunes. Um, no. Ooh. I don't either, so I, I guess... <laughs> oh, uh, leave us a review on there if you can find it. Um, so, if you use it. <laughs> yeah. We're not promoting it well. <laughs> Hello, Apple. Send us an email. Um, also, go to our website um, and just send us a message if you want us to read out a comment on a future episode that you have. Send us in and trust us. We'll do it. Um, if you send us in a comment, we'll read it out. So there's that. Um... And that is the end of Live and Let Die. A man with the golden gun is coming. Um, I will say that my name has been Noah Groves and this was magnetizing. I don't know. <laughs> my name is Ben. I'm simply a small-headed man with limited means who lost a fight with a chicken. And fuck you, Rosie Carr. <laughs> and I've been calling and... Rest in peace, Rosie Carver. <laughs> <laughs> And until next time, make sure you live and let me. You know you did, you know you did, you know you did. <laughs> My name's Bob. James Bob. Names is for tombstones, baby. When right on, young, brother. And your heart your champagne, sir. What was that? Your champagne. What? Shall I open it? What was that? Shall I open it? What? Shall I open it? No ice. That's extra bad. You what? Get me a making a white pimp mobile. Hey man, for 20 bucks, I'll take you to a Ku Klux Klan cookout. Well, it's just a hat dummy. Belonging to a small headed man of limited means who lost a fight with a chicken. What are you? Some kind of doomsday machine boy! You're only my second mission, you know. My first was Baines. The agent who was killed. Relief to know I'm next in line for the same kind of aid. <laughs> Funny how the least little thing amuses him. <laughs> you got a honky on your tail. Can't miss it. It's like following a cue ball. Y'all take this honky out and waste it, now! Rosie's been more efficient than I anticipated. I'm going to be completely useless to you. Rosie knows what to do. Uh, me. Clothes off where? Ah! There's a... Oh, a snake. I forgot I should have told you you should never go in there without a mongoose. You call my brother-in-law Billy Bob, he got the fastest boat in the whole damn river. Billy Bob sure no fix the ass. Here, go Billy Bob. First time in my life I feel like a complete woman. Slightest touch of your hand. Oh, sure we'd be able to lick you into shape. The genuine Phoenix Liza. Illuminating. Did you mess with that? What was that? Did you touch her? What? The question still stands, Mr. Bard. Asked by the gentleman concerned, did you touch her? I'm not in the habit of giving answers to lackeys. 
down those cards. The cards say we will be lovers. It is a blasphemy. Quite revealing. Ciao, Bello. It's a warning. Get it out of here! I mean, what the hell can the two of you do on the train for 16 hours? Now, the first thing to learn in playing generally is... Secret agent on whose side? Where's Kananga? Well, he always did have an inflated opinion of himself. Seems like the party started. My regards to Baron Samadhi, man. Right between the eyes. It's still going to be a beautiful day. <laughs> yes, a beautiful day. <laughs> Butterhook.